Hello, Artie here, and welcome to something new we're trying out, which is our roundup of some of our favorite episodes from the last year, 2023. So over the holidays, and as this year comes to a close, we're releasing a Best of 2023 series. This is by no means objective and making plenty of tough decisions to leave a few favorites out, but also featuring some newly unlocked patron episodes that people have been asking for for a while. So we'll be releasing one every weekday, and we'll be back with the first episode of the new year on January 8th. In the meantime, we want to say thank you to all of our patrons. It means a lot to us that we're entirely independent. We don't do ads or sponsored content and are entirely listener-supported, so your support goes directly to helping us make deeply researched episodes just like the ones you'll hear this week. And if you're listening to this and you're not a patron, you can support us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As always, stay alive another week, and see you all in the new year. What I really needed to hear when protection started to be ripped away in 2022 was that it's not too late. And that just because we're three years or more into a pandemic does not mean that it's too late to start organizing or it's too late to join organizing around the pandemic. Personally, I feel like I can't really trust an organization that's not taking on such a huge issue that is affecting everyone, but particularly poor people, working class people, people of color, people with disabilities, elders, like people who are already oppressed in so many ways. Every chain of transmission that is broken is valuable. Every person that doesn't get sick, that doesn't lose that week of work or doesn't become disabled or die from the minorest of inconveniences to the greatest of losses, every single one of those things is valuable. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today we have a very special episode for you. Yeah, so today's show is very different from usual uh, with the public health emergency ending May 11th and the conversation we've been having about how the end of many aspects of the federal COVID response is going to affect our social movements. We thought that right now would be a really important time to talk to a few organizers and political activists or advocates about exactly that. Yeah. Specifically, while some of the people you're about to hear from across these interviews have done some COVID-specific work, for this we wanted to talk to organizers who work on other issues, actually, about the importance for the left and for social movements in general in taking COVID seriously and everything that entails. Um, You know, what successes have they had and what failures and especially what gives them resolve to keep pushing for COVID protections in their organizing, even when some of their comrades aren't on the same page. Mm -hmm. And so uh, just a heads up, this kind of unfolds a little bit more like an oral history than some of the other things that we do. Um, B did some great interviews 
for this. And we did it this way because we want to kind of get this snapshot, I think, of where people are at um, yeah, and like what they've been moment. doing. Yeah, exactly. So another thing that makes us a little unusual, this is going to be a two-part episode. This week in part one, we'll hear from Alex, a student organizer at a university in the Northeast, and from Reina Sultan, a co-creator of 8-2 Abolition. And then next week's public episode will be part two. Yep. So we hope you appreciate this. Mm -hmm. Um, Patrons, we will see you in the patron feed on Monday. Uh, And without further ado, here are the interviews. Okay, so first to just start us off for the tape, do you mind introducing yourself with a like, my name is, my pronouns are, and I'm an organizer with fill fill in the blank? Yeah, sure. My name is Alex. I use she and they pronouns, and I'm a labor solidarity organizer and mutual aid organizer based at a university in the Northeast. Um, I do a lot of work around uh, advocating for better COVID protections. Um, organizing with worker groups and unions on my campus and also trying to merge those conversations and seeing how we can bring better disability justice and COVID practices into all of our organizing spaces on my campus and in my city. So do you mind talking briefly just about some of the organizing that you've been doing in the last year, maybe some specific issues that either in the COVID arena or in Things that are not, you know, COVID specific, but obviously are going to touch on COVID because of the context of the virus right now. Yes. Um, so for most of 2022, I was involved in an undergrad labor solidarity campaign on my campus to support the dining hall workers on our campus who were organizing for a better contract. So Their labor contract with the university was set to expire at the end of August of 2022. And myself and other organizers on campus came together at the end of 2021, beginning of 2022, to reform this labor solidarity coalition that sort of comes up out of the ashes every five years on campus to support the dining hall workers' negotiations and contract fight. Um, So we were building that campaign and trying to win that contract fight all throughout the spring and the summer of 2022. And we did end up winning a really awesome contract at the beginning of September. And, you know, shortening that entire history down into something a little (laughs) bit more manageable. um, A lot of what the workers were fighting for, I mean, pretty basic, you know, labor improvements, like higher wages to keep up with the cost of living, um, which obviously skyrocketing for a lot of reasons, COVID included. And then some other things that were embedded in that contract fight that we had to deal with were, for example, like sick leave and call-out policies were a huge, huge bargaining topic because what was happening is that our dining hall workers, you know, obviously they unfortunately, like the rest of us, were getting sick um, and having to take time off work. And the dining hall contractor company Instead of replacing those callouts with other workers so that the existing workers would have like a normal, humane pace of work, we're making dining hall workers work like the amount of three or four 
jobs basically at once to make up for their coworkers calling out sick. Um, obviously, during a pandemic where like a lot of people are calling out sick, that is happening quite often. So that was something that was straining them a lot. So um, by the time that we won this contract uh, in September of 2022, they were able to win the first guaranteed call out policy um, in their union's history. So we were able to get the, the contractor and the university to agree that all call outs would be replaced. So that was a really big win. I think it also shows that, you know, so many of the conversations we're having in labor spaces about overwork um, are super, super impacted by the pandemic, especially like in a university setting where all of us as college students are disease vectors, basically, because we're living in close quarters and um, going to the dining hall. That's also close quarters, common eating spaces. Um, and those workers who are serving us and feeding us are the ones who are also bearing the brunt of, you know, how much virus activity there is on campus. And so, you know, there's there's that. And then there's also, you know, just general mutual aid organizing on campus. I guess I should say the mutual aid network that we have on our campus was founded in 2020 in response to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So it started, you know, from that crisis because Students who were being removed from campus very suddenly um, to go into quarantine, some of them just did not have the resources for that sudden change. And so kind of sprung up in response to that crisis. And um, we've stuck around. And one of the main things that we focus on is food insecurity because the university doesn't guarantee three meals a day, which <laughs> I have opinions about, obviously. Um, and so, you know, we've done things like distribute face shields and masks as well at our sort of food pantry type project locations. And one of the things that I started working on personally at the end of 2022 in response to my university rolling back pretty much all of our protections and resources on COVID in spring of 2022 is creating a sub project within that sort of mutual aid network to focus specifically on creating a COVID response from the bottom up once the university basically abandoned us. So kind of is all connected because the food insecurity question and the COVID question and the labor question are all intertwined. So it's been pretty interesting working at the intersection of all of those issues. And I think having all of those issues bumping up against each other in the university setting has, has been an interesting place to work on incorporating precautions and protections into organizing. It's kind of like a, not a bubble because my university mm -hmm. is in the middle of like a big city. It's not like isolated off on like a <laughs> tall green hill, but it's been a testing ground for me as an organizer to see like who are the people who are most likely to be open to hearing about precaution taking and why it's important. And I'm sure we'll get into this later as well, but you know, like the undergrad and I guess just campus wide solidarity campaign that we conducted to support the dining hall workers was done in a very like COVID, <laughs> very COVID conscious, COVID impacted mm -hmm. way. I mean, all of our organizing was hybrid. Our weekly meetings where we were organizing and planning and stuff were all on Zoom. Um, all of our meetings were hybrid accessible until until the spring when mask mandates were dropped at my school, of course, we were all masking because it was a university campus. And so we had a mask mandate. And even after the university dropped the mask mandate, 
we kept asking people to mask when they came to our meetings and even to our big rallies. I mean, we had rallies on campus of, of, you know, upwards of 300 people. And we made sure that we brought masks to that and ask everyone to mask. And we were able to, you know, kind of as the campaign heated up, even though the university abandoned us in terms of taking care of us, we just continued that expectation within our bubble of the labor group. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Like wonderful perspective on all of the work that you've been involved in and the fact that, you know, you, you can't actually separate COVID out from any of these other issues that so many people are working on. Obviously, like it's central to a lot of labor issues, but within the context of a university, you know, especially a university that's in the middle of the city, considering the ways that, you know, as you're saying, the university kind of acts as this viral vector within a city that could already have kind of these higher concentrations and other populations that are going to drive it. You know, uh, one thing I think that's often under discussed in, in terms of like thinking of the college population, too, is also that this is like one of the biggest underinsured populations that we're thinking of in the country, like that are concentrated in one area. You know, so many college kids like have insurance that they can't literally afford to use. And so I think this is a really beautiful way of kind of laying out how all of these things are ultimately tied together. Um, now, you mentioned that, for example, the mutual aid work that you're involved in only started after COVID. And it seems like y'all have sort of taken the lessons of COVID towards sort of how you're going to organize the organization of your organizing um, and carried that through, which is a little unusual, but really great to hear about. Do you mind sort of talking about maybe just sort of specifically, since you were not doing this organizing necessarily with this group before COVID and it sort of sprung up in response, do you mind talking through, you know, as you were setting it up and making decisions about how you were going to run meetings to prioritize making things accessible via hybrid, via mask mandate? Obviously, these are not the choices that were the norm. So do you mind briefly sort of talking about how some of these decisions were made internally early on, sort of what the discussion was like around why it was advantageous towards your political goals to be making sure that not only were you sort of addressing COVID in the scope of organizing, but also that your organizing was accessible and aware and responsive of the actual reality of COVID? Yeah, I mean, I will say I wasn't around... Um, at the very beginning, the founding of the Mutual Aid Network, because I came to my university fall of 2020. And so they basically started it up, I'm pretty sure, during the spring semester when everything went down. Um, so I wasn't a part of a decision making, the decision making back then. Um, but I will say like a little bit of a perspective on that from from my labor group that sprang back up at the beginning of 2022 is um, it was it almost wasn't even a decision. It was just the way that we were doing everything else. If, if I could say that, like at that point, our institution, um, our university was, this is in 2020 and 2021 had some of the best and most well thought out COVID policies that I had heard of. I mean, we were getting PCR tested for free, um, twice a week. It was mandatory. Um, mm -hmm. up until up until 2022. So and, you know, of course, they they installed like, I don't know, some state of the art 
camera system so we could all have Zoom hybrid classes and all of that and mask mandates on top of that. And so when we went about organizing um, our meetings and making choices about how we would meet and what those safety precautions would be like, we kind of just did what we were doing everywhere else, which is like making sure that everyone had an option to come online because that's how we were doing our classes, for example. Um, and that's how a lot of clubs had adjusted as well on at my school um, when the pandemic hit. And so I hate to say that we were just kind of following <laughs> institutional models because that doesn't sound very like um, politically left. But, you know, at some point, at least my university at some point thought that the best way to save face and save money was to actually be really good on COVID. And that didn't change until 2022. So mm -hmm. all of these networks or organizing groups that sprung up um, that I was a part of in response to COVID or in response to conditions that were exacerbated by COVID um, were sort of shaped by the fact that we were in a place in an institution that was doing the right thing. We were getting tested multiple times a week for free, regardless of whether we're insured and we were required to wear masks. So it was sort of an easy transition to do that internally as well. And what changed when the university dropped its precautions, stopped requiring masks, stopped providing free testing was because of our values and because of what we were organizing toward. I mean, obviously we were pissed about it, which is why myself and other people formed our own COVID response team, but we didn't blindly follow that. And we knew that they were dropping things because it was more cost effective and they weren't worried about alumni and parents and all of that getting on their asses anymore. And so we just continued to do those best practices that continued to be best practices, even when the institution decided they weren't anymore. So I think it's kind of unique in that sense, because I was lucky that we formed while those things were still sort of socially, publicly common sense, at least, at least in left spaces, or at least in organizing spaces, um, obviously we weren't organizing with any anti-maskers <laughs> or anti-vaxxers. So we were able to kind of hold those practices over because we recognized that we weren't just like following orders. We weren't doing it because we were forced to, we were doing it because we wanted to protect each other. We wanted to make sure that we were staying as safe as we could because we knew that that was conducive to continuing our organizing and also being as inclusive as possible. So when the university decided to stop protecting us, that didn't mean we stopped protecting each other. Not to say that there aren't people who just sort of slowly transitioned to whatever everyone else in their community or their friends or what, what their classmates were doing. That did definitely happen, especially toward the end of 2022. And I'm sure we'll have a conversation about that. But, you know, like at least those of us who had some sort of like influence or leadership in those groups who had some kind of language to describe why it was important to keep protecting each other. And we were tuned in to disability justice and health justice. We were able to sort of nudge the people around us and say like, hey, no, this is still important. Mm -hmm. um, even if many people or some people in our groups were sort of just following the line of, of what the university said was safe and okay. Well, it's almost like, I, I really appreciated how you put it like, oh, well, we weren't just like following orders. It's it's almost like <laughs> um, because the university had such stringent and strict COVID precautions in place, 
those norms and that kind of structural apparatus for the protection seems to have facilitated your organizing, allowing y'all to sort of push through and have COVID sort of addressed as a given partially because of this kind of like structural facilitation. You know, I, I think it's definitely one of the reasons why, like, for example, I think we argue on death panel often that a mask mandate is not about enforcement, but about like sort of education and messaging and communication and also sort of setting those structural standards to help free people up because, you know, it does suck up a lot of time that, you know, we always have very limited time that we're going to be able to devote to organizing. Most people are not full-time paid organizers who do this as their job, right? So we're always fitting it in around all sorts of other things around life, around health, like whatever. And one of the things that what you're saying is really making me think about is sort of how when these sort of structural um, facilitated COVID protections started being rescinded, how much more work and labor was required from organizers to be able to um, continue the work that they were already doing that had to go into sort of negotiating, making things COVID safe. And I think that's a really interesting thing to sort of consider from the perspective of especially like Dean Spade's work on mutual aid, you know, that that sort of considers like counterinsurgency and and the time it takes us. Um, now, you posted on Twitter that your org has had some success with maintaining these these practices and have actually adopted guidelines. And you made these available online for folks who might want to use them themselves. Can you explain sort of how the process of the guidelines went? Sort of what, when the university abandoned y'all, obviously you had this template that you were working with of sort of the, the practices that you had been using. But, you know, what were sort of the conversations around uh, internally, sort of how you were structuring these guidelines, sort of what the priorities were in setting the guidelines and did you run into sort of any, you know, uh, issues or conflicts during that process? Yeah, I would say just personally, I, I've i always been, I guess, a little optimistic to the point of maybe being naive. And so it took me a few, <laughs> took me a few months from when all of our precautions dropped off in the spring. Um, I guess I should say, I think the social shift. I about like the social the social expectations that we have of each other of who is taking precautions who is mask wearing is it cool is it still a thing that we do I think it took a few months at least on my campus for even the left organizers or the left e community on my campus to start sort of slowly just dropping those things away so through the labor campaign for example even when the university dropped precautions, it was still sort of common sense in our group, at least throughout the summer. It was really with the start of the fall semester in September of 2022 that I personally started to notice it wasn't common sense anymore. And so I personally just started having to play catch up a little bit because I had thought naively that the values that we had in terms of protecting our workers and taking care of each other and all these things that we claimed to be for would very directly translate to these common sense measures like wearing a mask to a meeting or using the very few, but using the free tests that are available to us on campus, rapid tests, for example. And 
basically it took me by surprise that this wasn't common sense anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that came, I guess, from just all of us as students starting a whole new semester in the fall. Um, and all of us, including myself, being surrounded by, you know, 90 to 95% unmasked classrooms every single day with very unreliable remote options, um, things like that. And so when you as an individual, or let's say us as students in the time that we're not organizing, um, when you're surrounded by everyone doing the popular thing, which is erasing COVID and pretending it doesn't exist, um, when you return to that organizing space and you come back together, my theory is that we're all sort of just slowly being socially encouraged to just give up when we're all in in those majority unmasked, majority erasure spaces. So I think personally, that's what probably shook some of that group, group-wide common COVID sense that we used to have. And so how we went about coming up with the guidelines and and I can't even say we honestly, because I think it was mostly just me realizing that we had <laughs> lost, um, we had lost the assumption that that was just what we did because more and more of us were venturing out into a campus and into a world that just didn't care anymore. And that was starting to reflect in our space and myself being someone who's very, very stubborn, but also, you know, listens to the death panel and reads the people CDC weekly weather report and stays up to date on, on what's going on. Um, I decided that, it wasn't enough for me to just assume that it was common sense anymore. I needed to to write this down and to pitch it to the people that I organized with, because what would end up happening as we were planning events, for example, during the fall semester was we would plan an event and, you know, sort of toward the end of the event planning, if I didn't say, oh, yeah, and by the way, are we putting that we're going to require masks on the flyer? If I didn't bring that up, many times it wouldn't be brought up. Um, and it wasn't that people were hostile or that they didn't want to wear a mask. They just weren't thinking about it. So I started realizing that all of that effort that was placed onto me and a few other organizers who were keeping COVID in mind, it was taking a lot of energy and honestly, just a lot of like emotional energy to have to remind people all the time that it still existed. And so as a way to sort of make that easier on myself and also just to open up a conversation with my fellow organizers, I decided before we started meeting again in the spring to just write down what I thought would be a good plan. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't just pull this stuff. Like you said, I didn't just pull it like out of thin air. I thought about what common sense precautions we had had at school before the university gave up. Um, And I also just modeled safer gatherings guidelines from some of the guidance that's come out of the people CDC, for example, and just other public health folks and health justice centered folks who are talking about what are layers of protection. So how can we just apply multiple layers to try to catch as many infections as possible or to try to prevent as many infections as possible, I should say. So I took basic inspiration from layers of protection, safer gatherings guidelines, and I just sort of adapted them to what resources we have on campus. And that's something that I really emphasized as well, or tried to emphasize in the template that I put out, is that if you tell a college student to go get PCR tested, they're going to laugh in your face. (laughs) It's just not something that is accessible to, let's say, an uninsured college student. 
it's expensive. It's really hard to find for some people, especially in my city. There's not a lot of even free PCR testing sites in the middle of the city. Um, the city's not doing a good job of advertising the ones that exist, and they defunded most of them over the summer anyways. So, for example, um, you kind of just have to use what you have access to and try to use it in the most adapted way possible to maximize the potential of any one layer of protection. But it also really depends on your context. So for me, on a college campus in the middle of a big city, I'm working with people who really just want to go out and have fun with their friends. <laughs> and they're going to be in classrooms of 50 and 100 people with no masks on because they have to be in order to get their degree. It didn't seem feasible for me to come to them with guidelines that say, um, don't spend time indoors unmasked around crowds. Because the truth is, if we tried to make that a guideline, we would have no organizers in my area on my campus. But we could, for example, and we did, pool some of our money to buy higher quality masks. We bought a bunch of K95s to make sure that everyone at our meetings has access to a higher filtration mask. And we, you know, put together a list of free rapid and PCR testing sites. We put some isolation guidance on there as well. But again, like, for example, isolating after you're sick when you're a college student with no isolation housing and your professors have like, you get two days of sick leave per semester and then <laughs> I'm failing you out of the class. Like, that's just not going to happen. Like most college students, when they have COVID at this point in time in 2023, are not able to stay home from work or stay home from class for the 10 to 14 plus days that you need to fully recover. So we kind of just, or I, should, I should say, I adapted layers of protection to what I thought my friends and my fellow organizers would be capable of doing so that when I came to them and I presented these guidelines to them and I said, hey, like, I think we should talk about this, that it would be achievable and doable for the people that I was talking to. and. I would say like I got some concern from some people about the aspect of in-person community building and how important that was for building connections and making sure that our organizing efforts work long term. And the reason I got that concern was because I initially proposed that just our weekly sort of day-to-day -day organizing meetings be fully on Zoom. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's the way we had done it in the past. But we did do hybrid in the fall and people did seem to enjoy that. So I said, okay, we should, you know, make one of the two meetings a week hybrid to make sure that people have an opportunity to gather together and, you know, just have that mingling community building time. And, you know, if we still have that point in those guidelines about masking, then sure, like that's a concession that we can make to facilitate more community building. And then I think, I think other folks were concerned initially about the guideline about wearing like a KN95 or better when we meet, because again, like to a college student, we don't we don't have free mask distribution on campus for for higher filtration masks. It's only surgical masks. So mm -hmm. requiring that without actually providing the means to to get a mask or to get multiple, right? Because you theoretically shouldn't reuse them that much. That was a concern for some folks, and so we really made sure to say like, okay, before we stipulate this. We need to make sure that we can provide free access. And so that's when we came up with the plan to pool some of our money and use some money that we had gotten from some um, like fundraising type stuff and, and pull it and put that together and buy some. 
but yeah, after that, I mean, we haven't had an official coalition wide vote yet. Still working on that. But overall, like it's kind of just been informally adopted so far because once we plan an event and we bring the K95s and we hand them to people, I mean, that's how you do a mask mandate, right? Like <laughs> you just make it as easy as possible for people to wear it. And they just will when they're part of a community where it's expected and it's celebrated instead of just being something that you don't talk about. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I so appreciate you laying out that process and talking through, especially sort of the actual really difficult decisions that have to be made in terms of like how to make COVID protections work for different contexts and scenarios and groups of people. I mean, this is ultimately often one of the arguments that's used against COVID protections, right, is like the need for being able to tailor it, right? But it's so obvious that that need also seems to often arise out of the lack of like more formal, broad federal norms, for example, or more formal institutional norms. Um, so it is a, it is a one of those beautiful examples of like kind of the COVID social issue being created by the COVID structural issue, but then everything's blamed on, you know, oh, well, people just won't listen, you know? <laughs> um, do you have any uh, specific advice or sort of, you know, any lessons that you learned from, you know, this process that you would want to pass on to other organizers? For sure. I would say it's really hard to do this work alone. And so even though... I'm one of the only people, for example, in my organizing group that was really paying attention to COVID or like, you know, as a crazy COVID lady, as I like to say, um, what really helped me actually start something like actually start a response project, actually bring these guidelines together was having guidance from other people who were doing that work. So I couldn't have created my guidelines without reading the people's CDC safer guidelines or reading um, advice from from organizers who are doing this work on other college campuses, for example. Um, for example, the COVID response project that I am working on right now, we are about to begin representing our school in the COVID Safe Campus Ambassador Program. And so COVID Safe Campus is this national organization that helps bring people who are doing the same work as me and, and my friends and my fellow organizers, helps bring us closer with people who are doing that work everywhere. And that is so, so, so important because feeling isolated and feeling dejected in this work is like the number one way that we just stop sometimes. And I mean, I'm of the opinion that it's okay to like feel your feelings and process things. And at the same time, like it's so important to get guidance and support and community from people who are doing the work in other ways, um, whether that be, you know, like becoming involved with or just learning from and reading materials from um, a larger national organization or connecting just personally and making friends with more COVID conscious people in your in your city or in your region, regardless of whether they're also involved in the organizing. Um, just having those personal connections where you can feel understood and also kind of having those organizing connections where you can bounce ideas off of each other and like not reinvent the wheel, right? Like I didn't create that template out of thin air and that would have been 20 times harder if I had tried to do that. It becomes so much easier when you lean on people who are already doing the work. Um, so that would be my advice to people is like, even if you think you're alone and caring, you're not, you just have to reach out and 
you know, be loud enough for the people around you who are too scared to say anything to also say, hey, I also think this is wrong. And I also think we should join up and help each other and do something about it. Um, kind of in a both like gushy gushy friendship way. <laughs> and then also just in like a organizer to organizer solidarity way. Um, and I really, really hope that in 2023, we're going to see more COVID conscious labor organizers connect with more COVID conscious abolitionists, connect with more disability justice advocates, connect with more racial justice advocates who are also doing this work and sort of transform our movements and transform our organizing from the inside out by just finding each other, sharing resources um, and jumping into the work wherever we are. That's beautiful, Alex. I really appreciate the way you put that. Um, let's see. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I have. Th- oh, that's okay. You can take up as much time as you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I have. Uh, I have three more questions, real quick. Okay. Um, but I'll try and combine these two because they kind of are one question. Which is, um, can you talk a little bit about why you personally feel that COVID is an important issue to adapt your organizing to? And what would you say to someone who identifies as being on the political left, who really kind of thinks that like COVID is really not a big deal anymore? Maybe, you know, because that, that's sort of your advice to to organizers who see the way you do. So do you have any advice for organizers, I guess, who don't, who see kind of the opposite um, landscape regarding COVID? Yeah. And I've definitely had these conversations in person as well. Um, well, the first thing is, I think ableism and the sort of propensity to quote unquote forget about, but in reality, like abandon and push out disabled and immunocompromised people from our movements has been a trend and ingrained in a lot of left movement structures for far, far too long. And I think part of that is due to us sort of unconsciously or maybe even consciously sometimes adapting capitalism's idea of what it means to be productive or to win. Sometimes it feels like if you if you are not able not to create a pun but like if you're not able to get out in the streets and like go protest in person and walk around and make noise with your body and your voice or you're not able to go canvas like 20 30 houses an hour or you know just all of these things that are very physical and activities that are typically seen as the peak of organizing or the peak of leftist organizing productivity. Um, I think sometimes we like the ableism is sort of baked into some of those ideas of how we think about effective organizing. And I also Mm -hmm. think um, it's baked into some stereotypes and some like negative connotations of of slacktivism, right? Like um, what does it mean to be a social media activist or someone who does their work online? And that's some of the criticism that we get as COVID conscious organizers that we're chronically online because so many of the people that are most impacted by COVID or or most at risk of COVID complications are online right now because that's one of the only safe spaces that we have. Um, So first of all, I guess I would say it's important as leftists and as organizers to acknowledge that and to recognize that maybe some of the logics that we've been operating under this whole time deserve to be picked apart and opened up by this conversation around the pandemic. And then that's okay. And that's good. And we should be having those conversations. I don't know that everyone is up for that (laughs) self-reflection. Maybe not, but I think that's important. 
I also think I've been able to reach people by emphasizing the disability justice um, and also economic justice impact of it. So I mentioned, for example, um, like us as college students not really being able to isolate. Well, for example, I have some friends who even right now they get sick, regardless of whether or not it's COVID, and they can't financially afford not to go to work. And so sometimes the way that I present it is if we all just take these basic steps to try to protect each other from getting sick, whether short term or long term, that protects your ability. I mean, it protects your pockets, like it protects your ability to keep going to work. It protects your ability to keep participating in organizing in the way that you want. And I know that that's kind of contradictory to what I just said, <laughs> where like some of that is kind of this this productivity or work based ideology. But it does appeal to people. It does appeal to some people when you tell them like, hey, you know, I'm giving you these examples of people who are being taken out of work or taken out of their organizing life or whatever by these really severe impacts of this illness. Um, and our movement and our work, if we want to keep doing things that require being together in person, like a rally or a march or canvassing or whatever, we need to make sure that we're able to do that. So it's kind of contradictory, right? Like not every argument that you make to people, other leftists or other organizers is going to be like 100% based in like the truest and most pure form of, of like unpacking the ableism leftist movement that you really believe. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's like, Hey, I know you care about being able to get up, like walk out of your apartment and go to a protest. What if you couldn't do that anymore? And sometimes it is about like appealing to what that person cares about. Even if you don't agree with the underlying logic that an in-person protest attendee is doing some higher, more pure form of activism than someone planning a social media campaign or, or something similar. So it's kind of it's kind of that. And then I also think it's kind of um, I've had conversations before where I mentioned something that you said, like, well, if the institution doesn't care anymore, then that kind of gives us the impression that it's just this like natural social phenomenon or like that people just don't care anymore because they suddenly decided to just not care anymore. And so I hear that a lot from fellow organizers. Sometimes they're like, well, I do care and I really do want to do better. And I, I do want us to have better COVID protections, but you know, no one's going to listen to us or no one cares anymore. And that's hard stuff to hear because you kind of just want to shake people sometimes and be like, I know that's why we have to do it. Right. <laughs> um, like that's our job, which it doesn't feel good, right? Like it doesn't feel good as organizers to have to like take up the mantle of a failed public health response. <laughs> it doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel nice. But they, then again, like we've been doing that. Like that's the whole point of being an organizer is you take up the mantle, the responsibility to help create a better world where existing institutions have abandoned you. And so sometimes that's the sort of framing that I do as well. It's like, you really despise this university or this government structure for their failures in this, this, and this arena. You know, like I try to talk to my fellow organizers about this at my school because our university does all sorts of fucked up shit, like gentrification and funding like warmongering companies and like all of this awful, awful stuff that so many of us just very clearly despise. And so sometimes I'll lay it out for them and I'll say, you know, the same people who are working with Raytheon and gentrifying this historically black neighborhood in our city are the same people who are taking away your right to not get infected just to get your degree or just to organize with people on your on your campus. 
And so I try to include it in the conversation of issues that they're already familiar with being sort of anti-establishment around. And I've also just noticed that sometimes it's not the logical arguments that reach people. Um, Sometimes it's just me being really, really honest about how dejected and disappointed I feel and how scared I am. Um, And this is just something that I have noticed myself because I'm someone who really likes to be friends with the people I organize with and form genuine relationships with them. And so a lot of times this is not like professional organizer agitating conversations. A lot of the times it's just me sitting down with people who I consider my friends and saying, like, it really sucks that I have to ask you guys to mask every single time. It makes me feel really alone. It makes me feel like you don't care about my health. And those are the types of conversations, obviously, that sometimes go very, very badly. (laughs) Um, And sometimes people are like, you know what, like, that made me rethink. And I've had people say that to me. I've had people, fellow organizers in both the labor space and the mutual aid space, decide to start masking again because of a conversation I've had with them. So sometimes it's not about like professional organizer or Alex talking to them on like a leftist sort of channel. Sometimes it's just me as a friend coming to them and being like, I'm scared. I'm frustrated. I wish things were different. And just coming to them on a person to person level and saying like, I need us to do better. And that's obviously not going to be applicable to, you know, like every single political group or organization, especially people who have sort of different ideas about how organizing should happen and what relationships you should have with each other. But that's something that I've encountered as well that has been particularly effective is just trying to reach people on like a friendship level, on a personal level. Um, And that's hard work. Like that's really Mm -hmm. hard emotional work. But I sort of see it as my responsibility, um, especially someone who's not immunocompromised. And so I have certain privileges where I can be in certain spaces and talk to certain people where it would be super, super unsafe for someone else to be in that space to try to convince people. So I try to see that as I'm taking on this responsibility because there are people who can't be here um, and I want them to be here. Like it's important that they're a part of what we're doing and not, I don't want to leave those people out. So I definitely see it as a personal responsibility as well. I think that's, it's so important to have those really risky conversations. Um, But there is so much at stake in so many of them, you know, both in terms of like organizing and, and also your social life, as you're saying. And I really appreciate what you were saying about wanting to make sure to kind of, as someone who can still be in the room, kind of make your comrades aware that there are immunocompromised people who are not going to be able to show up and contribute because of structural and <laughs> physical situations that we're all living through. But I think, you know, it's it's nice to take that off of like the person who has to sort of advocate for personal access. I think it definitely, you know, it's I think it's definitely something that like a lot of people who are immunocompromised feel that like all of their friends have sort of abandoned them. Right. And and these are really risky conversations to have because sometimes just not bringing it up. You like hope it'll pass and your friend will just get over it. Um, but, you know, it's it's difficult, but it's so important, as you're saying. So as a last question, what gives you hope right now? What keeps you going when the nihilists are sort of burying you in the, well, no one's going to listen to us anyways? What keeps you from sort of giving in to that rhetoric? 
Yeah. Um, well, I think about where I was six months ago. Like I was really demoralized. I saw like no way out of this. I just thought it would be too hard emotionally and capacity wise to start organizing around COVID. And six months later, I am doing it. Um, so I think about that personally. So like that gives me hope because I feel like if I can process those emotions and get to working, regardless of, you know, how doomerish I feel, I think a lot of people have the potential to do that. And also what gives me hope is that the work is already happening. Um, and just because people in traditional leftist spaces aren't talking about it or it's not happening within their point of view, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Um, I think the work has been happening both kind of at a grassroots level with a bunch of, you know, disabled, immunocompromised and at-risk people starting these conversations. I mean, obviously, since the beginning of the pandemic, but especially when, you know, back to normalism came came around in a, in a huge wave in 2022, like people started talking about how bullshit it was. And now those conversations have blossomed into some really, really amazing work. I mean, there are like mask block groups and like resource distribution groups all us and i'm sure other countries as well that are doing amazing work getting ppe and getting resources into people's hands i know mandate masks us is doing some great work as well like collating all of those resources and making sure that people can access you know those people that are doing the work at their local level um there's great there's great work happening in terms of like providing alternative uh i should say alternative um pandemic information and <laughs> summarizing it from a health justice perspective like you guys have. And then there's also great work happening in terms of like lobbying. I shouldn't say lobbying because that's kind of a charged word, but there's a lot of great work happening to try to change these policies and to say, actually, we're not going to accept that this is all we can do. So, you know, there's people trying to do that at a university level, like COVID safe campus. And there's people you know, calling on the federal government and calling on government agencies to do better. And th I think there's a lot of potential there. I do think it's going to take a lot more buy-in from more people. But just depending on where you are and, you know, what social media communities you're connected with, um, it's really easy, I think, to feel hopeful at times because there are so many people that care and that are angry and they're fired up. And so many people are tapping into health justice and disability justice and what it means to have inclusive movements because of the pandemic and because that's shifted their mindset. And so I'm very, very hopeful because the work is already happening and it's it's catching on. And so my hope is that from people hearing about myself and other people who are doing this work, that it starts a chain reaction like it happened for me, where it took me seeing the strength of other people we're standing up and saying, actually, this is bullshit. We deserve better. It took me seeing that to feel like I was capable of doing something. And I hope that that's what people take away is like, there are people in your city, in your region, or at least in the same internet space as you that do care. They are doing this work. They are getting material resources into people's hands and they're trying to change policies. And all you have to do is go out and find them and join them. And it's totally okay if you're still unsure and you're scared and you still feel unsafe and you're still demoralized and you still think like, oh my God, it's so awful that this has happened. You can still do the work while you feel like that. 
Um, you can hold the optimism and the pessimism at the same time. And that's, at least that's my personal philosophy. <laughs> like, I can't sit here and say that as an organizer, like, my perspective hasn't shifted at all when it comes to how many people have died and how many people are being disabled by by these awful policies. Like, I can't sit here and say that that's not demoralizing to me. Um, but instead of letting that sort of stop me, I'm trying to make sure that that fuels me. And mm -hmm. that is fueling the work that I'm doing to make sure that fewer people, fewer people have to die, fewer people have to become disabled because of the injustice that's happening. Alex, thank you so much. This has been absolutely wonderful. And I, I really appreciate especially your answer to the final question, because obviously I'm biased because <laughs> I agree with you. But um, it is really hard work to keep up a practice of hope, um, especially, I think, in work that touches on health justice, because we're dealing with such entrenched norms and systems and ways of doing things. And I think the kind of story of your sort of shift um, from COVID doomer to someone who's like doing that work themselves is a really good story that I hope will inspire some people to just at least realize that while we are going to sort of have these moments where the despair overwhelms the hope, like that, that these things, that there is a sort of light at the end of the tunnel, that there is like organizing after these low moments and that learning how to sort of struggle together through them is really one of the most difficult tasks that we all sort of have to learn how to do over and over again for the rest of our political lives. So I really appreciate you sort of taking the time to walk through in such detail and really share also um, some of the, you know, messy nuts and bolts of like how you actually sorted through this and, and what you guys went through. Because I think as you're speaking to, there is a kind of intimidating aspect to trying to incorporate COVID into whatever people are doing, because there is a kind of newness to it. There's a structural um, barrier. So I, I think what you've what you've been able to tell me tonight is going to be really, really helpful to people that are feeling like, you know, there's no there's no forward. There's no future. And that's ultimately kind of the mind killer. Right. Like that's what keeps us from organizing in the first place is this kind of moments where we talk ourselves out of things. So I really appreciate that just personally. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And like just lastly, I would say what I really needed to hear when protection started to be ripped away in 2022 um, was that it's not too late. And that just because we're three years or more into a pandemic does not mean that it's too late to start organizing or it's too late to join organizing around the pandemic, because regardless of how long we're in this intense pandemic disease stage, the effects of this and the issues it dredges up and the people it touches it's going to be around for the rest of our lives and beyond. So it's absolutely never too late to start jumping into this organizing because the pandemic is more than just this initial, you know, spike of, of unpredictable disease. It's about everything that results from it, including the people who have um, gotten sick long-term because of unjust policies. So it's really important that we recognize like now is the best time if, if we have the ability and we we have the resources and we can find each other. Now is the time. It's it's never too late.
So if you wouldn't mind just sort of starting off by doing like a, my name is blank, my pronouns are blank, and I'm an organizer with blank. So we just have it like on the tape. Sure. My name is Reina Sultan. My pronouns are she, her, and I am one of the co-creators of Eight to Abolition and a, I guess, movement journalist. I am complicated feelings with that term, but I guess that is what I am. (laughs) I love it. Um, We should never be comfortable with our titles, whether we give them to ourselves or whether they're given to (laughs) us. Um, So, Raina, can you briefly talk about now in the past, over time, sort of what are the issues that you've done work around? What are the things that you have sort of centered your political home and the way that you approach political education in your work and life? Yeah, I would say that the number one political issue that I work on, write about, and ideate on is police and prison abolition. So eight abolition was obviously in response to the eight can't wait campaign, which was a series of reformist ideas to allegedly try to stop police violence in the wake of the George Floyd murder. Um, and a group of us came together to put together other things that one might put into place to get us closer towards a world without prisons and police. And then apart from that, a lot of my journalism is about abolition and also the ways that the prison industrial complex is kind of like bleeding into our lives in ways that are maybe a little bit more insidious. And that can be anywhere from like surveillance of sex workers to the ways that the family system works and how they separate people from their children. Um, And then I did a little bit of mutual aid work where when we first got, this feels like 300 years ago, when we first got the stimulus checks, (laughs) um, I put out a call on social media like, hey, if you got a stimulus check and you have money, Mm -hmm. um, you can send it to me and I will redistribute it. And I ended up getting thousands and thousands of dollars um, just like via Venmo and Cash App. And then people would reach out to me on social media and tell me their story, even though I told them they didn't need to tell me anything. I would (laughs) send it to them. Um, And then I would send them money. And I did that for a while for both the first and the second stimulus checks. And then I just like posted proof of my like sending it out online. And I felt like that was... um, a really good time for mutual aid. I miss those days. I know. Honestly, that it just is such a good use of the stimulus money, mm-hmm. right? And such a good example of how, you know, universal programs can actually offer us like so many opportunities for mutual aid, whether that's, you know, being able to like fund, you know, community clinics through something like Medicare for All or, you know, stimulus checks becoming a kind of redistributive fund informally and directly during the the time when everyone sort of needed it the most, that we all still definitely need that kind of support right now and we're not getting it. And I guess to sort of speak to like maybe how how COVID has required some change or adaptation, maybe in the way that you approach um, either thinking through your scope of coverage, organizing um, in terms of like a kind of political agenda setting, how did COVID sort of change the scope of your focus? Yeah, I think that in the beginning, it just became like something that I was also going to be writing about. Like when you're writing kind of like in the justice space, all of these intersecting issues and identities become important. 
So I think that I, in the like earlier days of the pandemic, I wrote a piece about how like decarceration efforts are more important than ever now, because obviously, as we know, there were times when the New York City prison system had the most COVID cases per capita of any other place in the world. And I'm not sure that that is still the case now because we don't have reporting data anymore, but it just became something else that was obviously like affecting people who are already the most marginalized more than it was affecting white people who were out and about and making a lot of money. And I was someone who was very lucky in the pandemic and very privileged because I work at a computer. So I was able to sit at home when there were a lot of other people who couldn't do that. And so it became very important for me in writing that it was clear like who was bearing the brunt of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, you've been putting a lot of work into trying to communicate online, you know, why COVID protections are so key to organizing and, and building community, sort of trying to centralize community care and accessibility. Can you talk about how that's been going? Have there been issues or conflicts with folks that you've organized with in the past, folks in your life, you know? Are you uh, sort of experiencing reactions or pushback to some of the ways that you've been trying to communicate about the pandemic uh, just publicly to folks using the platforms that you have access to? Yeah, I think like one of the hardest things about the pandemic is that like it has forced those of us who care about maintaining protections to become experts and things that we never were or should have been. Like I don't have a science background. I am obviously a journalist and like that has helped me a lot in researching and like parsing through fact and fiction, but I never wanted to know about the air quality. <laughs> like I never wanted to have to understand what it means for a virus to have like R10 or R18 or R0 and how like certain things are more virulent than other strains. Like I don't want to know about that, but because of this like government <laughs> abandonment we're being forced to learn things like that and i just think that is part of one of the hardest things for me to to do is that i spend all this time like trying to figure this out for myself and then i realize that's when i oh like i'm learning this i might as well tell other people about it mhm mm mm -hmm. absolutely because in 2021 like when we first got the vaccines i was not on the part of twitter that was sharing the information that the government was not and I was under the impression that like we were getting this vaccine and we were going to go into a part of time when it was going to be safer. And to a degree, it was because there were still other protections like we were still required to mask in almost all public spaces. There was still a lot of access to outdoor dining. There were hours at grocery stores where you could go where they were only like fewer people were allowed in and it was for immunocompromised and elderly people. So there were all of those protections plus the introduction of the vaccines. So we did have a time in New York, at least, where incidence was like 1% or 2%. And I felt like that I felt pretty safe. I was pretty certain that like wearing my mask on the subway, it would be fine because most other people would be and I probably wouldn't get COVID. Um, and then when I did get COVID, it was on a plane where I was wearing a KN95 and there was no one else on the plane was wearing a mask and everyone was coughing. And I was like, okay, well, I guess it's over for me. Um, <sighs> and I was struck at how difficult it was for me to find any information about anything. And that's when I kind of started to seek it out on social media. And 
that's also when I started to post more like educational posts. Before that, I would say like the majority of my political education was being done in in articles. Mm -hmm. Um, But I realized that there was such a gap in people's understanding about what this virus can do, how contagious it is, and what can happen to you after the acute stage of infection. So I just started posting. And I would say overall, it's fine. Like, (laughs) I'm not getting more hate than I usually do. Like, I'm usually talking about freeing everybody from prison. So it's like, it's there's enough people already who have you're well suited for this something yeah. to say to me, so it's not um that different in the sense when it comes to the, like the hatred but i am getting a lot more pushback from people who i would not expect it from like usually mm. if i was writing about abolition sure i'd have some like liberals and then mostly like conservative trolls telling me like oh somebody's going to come and kill you in your house and i'm like okay um <laughs> but I feel like there's been more people who are self-proclaimed leftists who are saying some really hurtful and horrible things to me and especially to people who are um, immunocompromised. And I am chronically ill and disabled to some degree, but I, I'm not immunocompromised. Mm-hmm. And so like I'm taking these precautions because I believe that I want to protect myself and also other people, but it's, I'm not as in danger as some other people might be. But to me, that's not like, that doesn't excuse us from (laughs) taking precautions. Right. Because I care about other people. (laughs) Like it, like it was important to me that, that people were not getting infected by me and that Mm -hmm. I was not like trying to spread this disease. But then I became a lot more clear about how I could potentially be affected and not that that changed my belief that I should protect others, but it did alter my feeling of like, I might be okay if I got infected because before I was like, okay, I'm doing these things because I believe that I am not the most at risk person in my community. And so Mm -hmm. I'm protecting the most at risk at all times. Like when I'm trying to do any type of work. I'm always trying to think about the person who is most affected by the state, by some kind of abandonment, by violence. And so I wasn't necessarily thinking about how I would be affected because I thought, okay, I'm like normal, healthy, whatever, allegedly. (laughs) But there is no normal. We are all humans. We are all at risk. We all probably have underlying conditions we don't even know about. I think people believe that disability is this foreign concept and none of us can even get anywhere close to it. But most people are disabled in some way, even if they do not yet know it and will likely become disabled at some point in their life. So it's not this far off idea. And I think the faster people understand that we are all at risk, And of course, on varying spectrums of that, but it doesn't mean that it's not a risk to everyone. And to me, if you've been infected once, twice, three times, however, and you're not yet feeling the effects of that, that is luck. It is not you being built different. It's just luck. And I think once I understood that 
no one is spared from this. I became a lot more serious about educating people in a way that they could understand not only how their actions were affecting other people, which I think like a lot of this, like we keep us safe messaging in the beginning of the pandemic was working and then stopped for some reason. But I think we, a lot of people missed the part where it could affect them too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there any kind of difficult conversations that you had that actually worked out well, where you were able to take someone who, you know, might have been like a little hostile, a little antagonistic, some of those like people you wouldn't expect to be pushing back against you? Have you come out of any of those kind of moments of pushback, like convincing the other person? Or are they sort of motivated right now to walk away? I think the push towards normalization is so heavy and hard that in a lot of instances, the kind of peer pressure, the social pressure is outweighing appeals to even just kind of like the most baseline kind of like COVID is class war. This is about economic justice, you know, even like thinking about this in terms of wages and the workforce, right? Like that's even kind of failing for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. I think it's really hard and I, I don't purport to have changed hearts and minds in a way that is meaningful. I will, I will say that to some degree, I have had success in the sense that I like have known people who had previously been taking precautions and maybe like unmasked during the great unmasking when a lot of us felt that things would be safer. And I've, I've had success in taking like a harm reductionist approach. I hesitate to call it that because it's, I just feel like it's selling ourselves short, like of what we can really do to prevent mass death and disability But at the same time, like if there is no big undertaking from the people and no help from the state, the only thing I can think to do is take my cues from communities who have had to do things like this on their own before. Mm -hmm. And so I think particularly like when we're thinking about drug use, like we're not telling people not to do drugs. So Though it is my preference that we don't do super spreading. Yeah. I can't stop that myself. So the only thing I can do is to get people who might still be engaging in those activities to take precautions at other times in their life to lower the likelihood that their super spreader COVID event ends up spreading even more. So like what I usually try to do is if I know somebody who's like out at the clubs every single weekend, going out every moment of their life, like literally only existing in spaces where they probably are seeing people with a bunch of COVID all the time is I'm like, Hey, you should wear a mask when you are in the grocery store and at the pharmacy and at the subway and at the doctor, because those are the places where people don't have a choice to be around you. Like you're going to the bar and all those people consented to be at the bar with you and your potential COVID, but the people on the subway who are going to cancer treatment did not consent to that. And I have likened it often to like, you would never get mad at somebody for asking you to like test your Coke before you use it or something like that. Like that's something that's normal in a party community. So I've tried to be like, so when you're like going to test your Coke for fentanyl, you could also just take a rapid test at the same time. They take the same amount of time to load and you're kind of killing two birds with one stone. So I try to like link it to other Mm, things mm -hmm. they already are doing comparable to like I 
like in the sex work community, obviously everybody is getting tested before shooting a new scene and people who are doing full service get tested all the time or use barriers. And so I try in those situations, like, okay, you guys are taking all of these precautions when you're engaging in your job because you know that you are trying to protect yourself in X, Y, Z way. So also do these things, even if it's imperfect, because the likelihood that you'll at least stop spreading it if you are having COVID at that moment will be lower. So it's just not perfect, but I've found it to work at least a little bit better. And then at least those people are wearing their mask on the subway. Like, Mm -hmm. and it's like, obviously, if we had a mandate on the subway in the grocery store, all of these things would be circumvented. I could then work on people to try to get them to make their events safer or things like that. But right now, my biggest focus when I am talking to people about precautions is on these essential activities that we're locking disabled people, immunocompromised people and the elderly out of. Um, And so I think that that's been my biggest success, I guess, is like getting people to kind of see how, okay, this small inconvenience to me is actually a, a big help to other people. And it's not stopping them from going to super spreader events, but the small wins I think are better than nothing. Um, and then I've also had some success in like asking people to implement things before hosting people. Like if mm-hmm. someone's like, Hey, Reina, do you want to come to my house and watch a movie? And I can be like, Oh, I actually will not come to your house and watch a movie unless everybody takes a PCR test before. And we open the windows and have a HEPA filter on. And either that person says, okay. And does it, or they're like, oh, I don't think that's going to happen. And then never invites me to something again. Fine. Then I know we're not probably real friends, but Mm -hmm. it is my prerogative to at least make anywhere I am going as safe as possible. And then in the hopes that that person will then just do it again, the next time they are having people over or want to hang out with someone. And it just like, is really arduous. Like, Every day I'm navigating this in my personal life on top of what I'm posting on the internet. So mm-hmm. it is pretty exhausting because I am both just like trying to live and protect my community. And also like, I feel this huge burden of showing people what they're not learning because the truth is like any average person on the street has genuinely no idea what COVID does to you long term short term, anything, because the media and the state are not, except for business media, are not um, explaining what is actually happening to you. So most people's only understanding of death and disability as it relates to COVID is either if someone they know died or if someone they know or themselves has long COVID. Mm -hmm. And that is clearly like we're missing something in political education, we are missing some kind of intervention that reaches the vast majority of people because it is scary how, how there is this information gap mm-hmm. um, and how small changes could really make a big difference. Like, for example, people don't know they can catch COVID outside. They, they just think they cannot if they think it is impossible. And that is a huge failure in messaging. People don't understand why like they think masks don't work because they got COVID when in reality their mask was like just covering their mouth the whole time. 
they don't know that COVID is airborne. So people think that if there's no one in the space that they're in, even if it was occupied five minutes prior, that they're safe. And these are just huge messaging failures because I think if people really truly understood how easy it is to get COVID and how likely it is that something bad will happen to you if you get it, we would have a different set of behaviors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wonder, do you have any sort of specific advice to pass on to people? Um, you know, maybe people who are dealing with with folks who are uh, not listening to them that they're organizing with, or maybe even just feeling frustration because they're not feeling like they can do enough. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not like super hopeful and feeling like so positive and happy about all of this. Like I, I can't say that that's like, I'm going into each new day being like, yes, today is the day I will change people's minds about this. Like I mm. don't feel like that. And at the same time, I think it just with so many things that are unpopular, <laughs> you just have to keep going because there is nothing else to do. So it's not like I think that that's good advice though. You know, that is really, <laughs> that's a really hard lesson to learn. It took me like four years to learn that. It's a and huge I, lesson. I take things so personally, even when they have genuinely nothing to do with me. Like I, I just get very bogged down by people ignoring the ills of society like it makes me like it genuinely keeps me up at night I cry about it it and I know that some people see that as weakness but I urge people who are waking up feeling scared stressed upset about this collective abandonment to not discount those feelings especially in the face of people being like you're living in fear but yes yes in fact I am and you should too it's scary actually and I think that you shouldn't leave that behind. Like those emotions that you're feeling feel hard and bad and they are, but I don't think that they're something we should leave behind instead to like pick up some kind of weird pragmatism that makes people feel better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think that if I didn't feel this so deeply, it wouldn't. I wouldn't feel that drive to try at least to change one person's mind or make the one person grab their mask on their way out the door. Like I just, I think we sometimes just have to lean into the fact that it sucks <laughs> and it just does. And I'm not, I'm not hopeful that it's like going to change quickly or that people are suddenly going to be on my side, but I can't not believe that it's possible because then it's there's no reason to keep going and I want to keep going. So yeah. I think I think back a lot obviously to Miriam Kaba and hope is a discipline and I will literally be like crying shaking throwing up on my bathroom floor being like there is no way we're never going to change this and then I'm like god Miriam Kaba would be so mad at me right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like I try, I just try really hard because everything else I'm fighting for is also as ridiculous and unrealistic. Yeah. Like 
people in my every day are telling me like we could never live in a world without prisons, but we could. And I believe that. So why can't I believe and other people also believe that we could live in a world where every single public place has incredible ventilation and filtration? We could. So Mm -hmm. it's just like I have to hold on to the like 3% belief that I have that something will shift dramatically. And that is why I keep doing it. I like it just that's just the only way I can explain it, I guess, because 97% of the time I'm like, wow, I am really doing this hopeless effort here. And then, but I don't stop. So it has to be <laughs> that 3% that is like, I do believe that people are good. Like, I do think that, that we all have this drive to survive and to help others survive. And it's just about harnessing it in some way. Like, I do think that the vast majority of people does not want to be doing mass death and disability because otherwise, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I think that's so well put, Raina. I mean, I actually these the kind of realizations that I had coming into abolition. I mean, it's something that I talked about this in my interview with Ruthie Gilmore. Like, it took a very long time for me to sort of come to abolition, starting with like friends being incarcerated and it not feeling right or fair, and not really having language or understanding for those feelings to, you know, developing that into a coherent political view of the world and agenda and series of desires and demands. And along the way, that process involved so many moments of realizing that there were things that I just, that just had not occurred to me before. And moving from there forward, you know, and taking lessons from that. And it's interesting because I spoke to Ed Yong over the summer, like right the day after I'd gotten out of the hospital or like I'd gotten out that morning and I was Mm -hmm. talking to Ed Yong and he was asking me, you know, we're a couple months out from the community level system. Like, it looks like no one's going to go back like I, you know, I, I even feel despondent. He said, like, sort of like, I don't know what to do. Like, what do we do? Like, how do you keep going? You, you're on your show demanding a mask mandate and everyone else is saying that's impossible. Like what makes you feel like you can make that demand? And I'm, (laughs) I was basically like, I've got a little Miriam Kaba in the back of my head. who's like, you know, you have to, you have to just move forward you have to keep pushing and you have to like refuse these kind of limitations that often come from just things we haven't actually thought through all the way often and I sort of explained to him you know you kind of have to practice hope you have to move forward you have to make these decisions to kind of be like I'm going to be the person that's going to make the big demand and like it's okay if I'm working for people after me and I never see this, like, that's fine. That's part of it. That's what I'm hoping for. You know, he was like, that had never occurred to me. Like I had never thought of that before. And I, and that was like, so interesting to me, right? Because this is someone who has been writing about pandemic inequity, reporting on it, talking to experts and patients and doctors and people experiencing long COVID for the first time and regulators and lawmakers and teachers and 
all sorts of people and has been covering the pandemic in such depth and like it's not necessarily things like just keep going like just keep pushing like those are not like the kinds of ideas about how politics work that come kind of implicitly from the way that we're taught politics is in the United States, right? Like this idea of being able to want and desire things that seem ludicrous or quote unquote crazy, like a world with no police, a world with no prisons, like those are big asks and desires that the average person feels would be unreasonable to even voice as an opinion or a desire for a political outcome, let alone a legitimate demand. But there is so much value in sort of pushing ourselves to that point and really thinking through some of the things that we have in question, which is, I think, also evidenced in the sort of what ultimately shifted your thinking on COVID, which was sort of this position of like understanding risk shifting and your understanding of it going deeper. I mean, I think this is really just why political education is so important and why we cannot have like COVID education that is apolitical. You can't. <laughs> You can't like depoliticize COVID and fix this, right? Like actually the way to fix COVID is by politicizing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that something that a lot of people forget, myself included, is that we were not born radical Mm -hmm. and we had to learn a lot of stuff to get the positions that we have, that we hold now. And I think that it's very easy to get so angry that people are not doing the things or believing the things that you do. And it it gets me every day, almost almost every day. I am overwhelmed with the desire to just like cut somebody out and be like, why do you not care about killing people? Because this is fucked up. And then I have to remember that like, I was a liberal. <laughs> there was a time when I was like, I love politics. Like th- that existed for me. And I was able to change my thinking, but it was not overnight. And most people had this type of change. Like, I don't know very many people who were lucky enough to be raised by someone who was radicalized and could like lead them on that journey. And obviously our education is not towards radicalization. So (laughs) you kind of have to find that on your own. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that we have to remember when we are doing This work that like our next co-conspirator might be someone who did something we disagreed with two weeks ago. And Mm. maybe it's trying to get them to change their behavior in March. And like, I'm not saying we should forgive and forget everything that anybody's ever done that's harmful. I think that part of radicalization is really contending with the times that you believed things that were harmful and worked towards those ends. And also, if we disqualified everyone from radicalism who is not yet there, we would have no one. So Mm. I do think that it is important for us to, and this is something I, I try to say a lot when I'm posting, like, you can just start again. You are allowed to start masking again, even if you weren't. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, when they like stopped taking precautions, then felt they could never go back because they made this decision, which maybe they're now ashamed of, but they're like returning to masking or buying a HEPA filter or like asking everybody to take tests before hanging out now feels like, oh my God, I I made a mistake and I'm admitting it. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. 
It's actually fine to make a mistake and admit it. And also to not admit it, you can just do it and not say anything about it. That's not my preference. I hope that when people go back to taking precautions that they want to bring people along with them. But if that feels too hard and all you can do is start up precautions yourself again, you can just do that. There is, there's no rule that says when you put the N95 back in the closet, you can't just take it back out again. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, that's been hard for some people to grasp that it's like an admittance of failure or of like believing the lie, but that happens. We're people like, it's not, we're not without fault. No one is. So I think that we have to let people back into the fold who have opened their eyes to the truth. Um, not without being like, Hey, what you did was fucked up and you should not do that anymore. (laughs) But I do think that it's not possible for us to make the changes we want to make without a bigger amount of supporters. And we have to let ourselves accept people who are imperfect, not excusing the behavior. I'm not one of those people who's like, we should be nicer to the like minimizers. That's not what I'm saying. I don't believe in that. I will not mince words with people. There is a difference to me between someone who is getting on the internet and being like, disabled people are being so fucked up right now. Yeah. Like that to me is like, okay, you're clearly like doing work, actual like intention based work to minimize what is going on and to make disabled people feel like they are some kind of burden on society. And the only good thing that we can all do is sit in our house and suffer. But I do think that if someone is actually contrite and feels like, yeah, I did go to those parties and do all that stuff. And then I was like, oh my God, what am I doing? And I learned about this and I decided to change my mind. That person is not the enemy any longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we should we would do well to remember the times when we held fucked up opinions too. So we're here with part two of our mm-hmm. conversation with organizers. Again, just in case you haven't heard part one, we're talking this week and we talked last week with some organizers, um, what successes they might have had, what failures they've had, and especially what gives them resolve to keep pushing for COVID protections, even when some of their comrades are not on the same page. Mm-hmm. It's a great episode. In part two today, we have Becca, Rhea Small, and Kelly Hayes. So without further ado, let's get to the interviews. I'm Becca, she, her pronouns, and I do... Uh, some organizing and activism in Atlanta. 
Becca, can you talk briefly about what kind of organizing you've done in the past, what issues you've organized around, sort of where your political home centers? Sure. I've done a lot with the the campaign against Cop City in Atlanta. I have also worked with a small horizontally organized uh, group of journalists in Atlanta called the Atlanta Community Press Collective. You're coming from an abolitionist perspective as well. I am. I do. I do a lot around anti-police stuff. Even before the Cop City project got started, I was doing a lot of of abolitionist stuff, especially in 2020, obviously. And now, uh, now I do a lot of of disability advocacy as well, disability justice type stuff as well. Uh, since becoming disabled myself, I was doing a little bit before then, but it you know, it kind of becomes much more at the forefront once you're disabled yourself. So, mm-hmm. and I generally approach things personally from an anarchist perspective. So in terms of like some of the organizing that you've been doing over the years, obviously as different campaigns get started, different like orgs you're involved with sort of come and go, our organizing lives always change. But Everyone definitely had to sort of make some sudden abrupt changes as a result of COVID. In terms of how COVID shifted your own organizing, what kind of changed as a result of COVID? And then what's changed throughout the duration of COVID? Yeah, well, in the beginning, I think there was a lot of consciousness around it and a very big willingness to... Uh, sort of do as much precautionary stuff as possible, even though we had way less information at the time. I remember we did everything that we possibly could outside and the vast, vast majority of people were, you know, masked and uh, tried to really limit indoor in-person gatherings and so forth. And um, as time has gone on, a lot of that has started to sort of fall away there were a lot of like there were a lot of zoom teach-ins too i remember that being a very Mm -hmm. big thing like a lot of a lot of like webinars and stuff which you know i I mean you can debate the like efficacy of of that but like in terms of accessibility it was really nice to not have to be somewhere in person to benefit from what was going on there for sure Mm -hmm. Um, and i think it still obviously had quite an impact the protests that happened in atlanta you know i mean protests are nice because they're pretty much always outside. (laughs) So, um, but even in, even in like preparing for them and, and getting stuff together, it was a lot of like meeting in parks and stuff, working with um, medic crews, like street medic crews. We would mostly do outdoor meetings when we could. Um, When we did the, there was like a big like medic training thing and uh, the part that had to be done indoors was in a big warehouse space where we had like all the open doors and stuff and everybody was masked. And then the stuff where you couldn't necessarily be masked, it was done outside. So like, I don't know, it seemed like that was at the forefront and it was also very like easy and natural. Like it didn't feel nobody, it didn't feel like it was a a burden on anybody. It felt like, well, this is how we have to do it. So let's, let's, let's get it done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, This is actually like a very common response that I've gotten to this question of sort of like what was the like immediate reaction to COVID was that there was a lot that people have mentioned like, oh, it was common sense and Mm -hmm. it felt common sense and it felt like 
that the consensus was like that precaution and an abundance of sort of precaution was not only a good thing, but like a advantageous strategy. But that yeah. that that attitude gradually, people said, has dropped off, and that as it's dropped off, the kind of amount of work that's been required to try and negotiate even like a comparable level of protections or or accessibility options has gotten harder and harder. Is that something that you've also sort of experienced? Is like folks have said, particularly in the last year, they have felt it more than in prior years. But also some people that I've talked to have said, you know, I was fooled by the Biden administration for most of 2021. And, you know, I know that that's a time that you and I were both sort of in the same position that we are now with regard to COVID. And you and I are both two people who were sort of from this position and like making these critiques in a very lonely year to make them, which was 2021. Um, yes, definitely. So I'm curious to hear you talk about sort of like when you feel like you started to perceive that shift where the the burden became greater on you in terms of having to negotiate, not just in your one-on-one relationships, but also in these more sort of broad sort of social relationships that we have through organizing where you're kind of dealing with a lot of people who are coming from a lot of different perspectives with a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different opinions on COVID by probably like July, June of 2021. That for me was the moment that I feel like the floor really fell out. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of hard to say for me when the shift happened because part of part of how it went for me is that I got very sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like, I, I have MECFS now possibly from long COVID, but it's unclear. But anyway, I sort of, you know, I sort of dropped away from in-person organizing for a very long time and tried to do what I could online. Um, I did a lot of like scanner watching, like police scanner mm-hmm. watching. And that's when we started that like media organization and stuff. But and then as I started to sort of try to come back in the fold, um, coming back into it, I realized like everything has changed and these places aren't like we're not taking care of each other anymore uh, in, in that way, at least. Like I would realize that a lot of the meetings and workshops and events and stuff, like I remember a time when safety precautions were listed on flyers for events. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that because you could know, like, is this something that I can go to at all? You know, um, and gradually I would notice like I would, uh, you know, I would see a flyer for an event. Um, we would have like we had like, you know, concerts and fundraisers and like bake sales and stuff on top of just like regular meetings and, and organizing stuff. And I would see no mention of what you know, what COVID precautions we're taking. Is this indoors or outdoors? Are there masks required? Are there masks even given out, et cetera? And I would see that those weren't listed anymore. And I would ask like, does that mean that the, that we're not doing any of that? Does, uh, or mm-hmm. like, can we, can we put it on the flyer if so? And I would kind of get pushback from that. Like it was, it was like asking too much when to me, it's like a basic form of community care that is necessary to, you know, keep the movement running. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I, I don't know if I have long COVID or not, but my experience is 100% consistent with many, many people who do. So 
to me, like seeing the stark reduction in my activity levels, I'm like, well, why would we want, why would we want our, our, our activists to experience that? Like people are, are being forced to, to at least greatly scale back their, their physical involvement and being put through a lot of, of suffering in the meantime as well. And it seems strange to me that we would allow that to happen when we don't, you know, we don't have to. Mm-hmm. We do everything that we can to keep people from getting arrested or to keep, you know, like white nationalists out of the movement or whatnot, because those pose a like a risk to health and safety and to morale and, you know, all kinds of other obvious things that it's just like a, a no brainer to want to take care of. Totally. And and this is something that I've been thinking about so much, because when we think of like other movement safety norms, right? Like those are things that have been learned through hard lessons, things that we do to avoid, you know, surveillance from law enforcement, infiltration and movements, these kind of like self-protective measures that we take as leftists, particularly people who are organizing during times of like great attention to left politics and during times of no attention to left politics. Like there's a long history on the left of having to deal with really insurmountable odds, really complex problems that keep you apart, whether that's taking your time away, taking the space away to meet, making meeting unsafe. You know, these are problems that leftists like should recognize at face right because we encounter them so often so it's it's almost like it's surprise it's not surprising surprising is the wrong word i can never quite figure out what the right word is but i think it's disappointing (laughs) is the right word you know i'm disappointed that that folks are not seeing this here um because as you're saying like when we think about like just basic safety procedures like to avoid kettling Right. Like some of these safety procedures in terms of like InfoSec even. Oh, yeah. I've been to plenty of meetings where, you know, the the organizers of the meeting will say, like, no fucking phones. Leave your phones in your car or better yet, leave them at home. Don't take notes even, you know, don't record this, etc. And those things are like minor inconveniences, but they're accepted because we know what the potential consequences are. And those are not 100 percent certain consequences they might even have a low chance like there's a fairly low chance that your personal phone is going to pose a problem at a given meeting but mm-hmm. you you it's just like well yeah sure you know I, <laughs> I don't know it's and that's a good security culture i think um yeah no one would ever say like it's harmful to go a little extra further than you need to on infosec right and to be sure, there, there are arguments about that, but it, it feels it feels different, you know, and I think it's part of this like sort of greater societal denial about the situation that we're still in. So maybe let's talk about some of these conflict moments. What are the arguments beyond like this is too much like this is too much of a burden for us to take on that you've you've come across? Yeah, I've I've had one person say that it was like an infringement on bodily autonomy um, to ask people to mask at events. And I tried to say like, well, what about the bodily autonomy of people who don't want to get infected by a terrible pathogen? And they, 
their response was like, well, by being at the event, you're, you're kind of giving consent for that. And I'm like, well, no, I'm, I'm not like, I do not give consent for that. Like, and that's exactly the kind of attitude that keeps me away from certain, from like some of these events is like, I, I don't, I, that type of consent shouldn't be expected, nor is it explicitly communicated. So to me, that's not consent. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just like, well, if that's the attitude, then what you're saying is that like immunocompromised people or high risk people of any sort, or frankly, regular ass people that shouldn't be getting sick over and over again, uh, that could easily become disabled from this or worse shouldn't come. And like, I don't know that the, the bodily autonomy argument feels extremely weak to me when the imposition of a mask requirement versus the imposition of a debilitating disease seems like like there's such a stark difference between those two things and i feel like they get they get leveled out like you have one side saying like please do not further disable me and you have the other side saying like please do not make me feel bad and i'm like one of those things is way worse there's a there's a power imbalance here you know yeah um well, it's interesting you brought up the consent example specifically. I was talking to Raina earlier today, like we were texting about this, and she brought up how she had had a lot of success using the consent framing and the fact that, you know, when we're in public space without masking, we're exposing people to the kind of pathogens that we've interacted with in other spaces um, as an argument um, to talk to folks who were like partying a lot and then going unmasked on the subway that, mm-hmm. you know, Raina was like interacting with in everyday life. And and she said, like, I had a lot of success saying to them, like, okay, like, listen, you're going to this party, like, you guys are refusing to do masks at the party. So everyone who's at this party is like consenting to exposure. But then if you go on the subway unma- unmasked, you're exposing everyone on the subway without their consent. And they can't yep. avoid being there. And exactly. I think what is so interesting about what you just said right now is it it i think raises the question of like obviously like organizing spaces are social spaces and organizing relationships are social relationships and this is sociality but there are different levels of like consent and power in all of our relationships in all of the spaces that we inhabit and move through right and so i think what often is going on is like these kind of arguments used to discuss private spaces and private gatherings are being applied to movement spaces and saying that this should categorically sort of apply. And I think what's frustrating is that a lot of us actually get into organizing and approach organizing and and initially even feel comfortable being in organizing spaces because they're explicitly not like a private space. Yeah, sometimes Mm -hmm. they're invite only, but the idea is also that like, you know, folks are kind of coming together for a reason, right? And that reason has urgency and political salience and, to yes. say that that is a, a an event where it shouldn't be like a bus, right? Or it shouldn't be the kind of thing where like people cannot go unless they are comfortable being exposed to a virus is to really kind of make a statement about who movement spaces are for. That is Definitely. fundamentally not something I think as like leftists we want to reproduce, endorse, or uphold. And and I don't think people totally see what's going on there when these kind of arguments about privacy and autonomy and, 
you know, wanting to make sure that spaces are friendly or whatever are used. It's like keeping this like able-bodied norm in mind, you know, at all times. And I, and I think the thing too is like, if we're thinking about this from a economic justice perspective, like repeated exposures to COVID mean being out of work a lot. And so when we also make movement spaces, not like buses, but like nightclubs or dinner parties, it's also not just like kicking the disabled people out who are also poor people. Often the majority of us are disabled and poor. The United States makes sure of that. But it's also this economic justice angle of really not putting your money where your mouth is in terms of being like, I'm orienting myself from a pure perspective of class analysis. And yet, like, I'm completely ignorant of like the kind of power that I hold to take away someone's economic power through the spreading of illness from one person to another in a space, you know? That is a, that is a really good point, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That is an extremely good point. Like, even a so-called like healthy person losing a week of work, most people can't really afford that. Like, and you're definitely creating a space that is more likely to be white and higher income and able-bodied. And that goes against the ethos of what we're usually trying to do on, on the left, you know, like margins to the middle is a slogan for a reason. Like it's not, it's not even just a slogan. It's an ethos. And like, you, you could technically make the argument that movement spaces are voluntary in the sense that like, I won't lose my house if I don't go to this given protest. Like I might, if I didn't go to my job or what have you, but like, on the other hand, like personally, I do this type of stuff because I do think it's necessary. I think that if enough of us aren't doing this kind of work, we're not going to see the future that we want to see. And the present that we're inhabiting is just going to keep getting worse. So I do see it being, I don't see it necessarily as a voluntary space where you can just say, well, if you don't want to accept this risk, then don't show up. Like, I think I need to show up. I, I kind of see it as my as my duty to show up, you know, and there's there's like another argument that people made is that like, well, in doing this kind of work, you have to accept a certain amount of risk. And well, sure. But why not reduce the risk as much as we possibly can? Like, why not? Why not try to reduce own goals? You know, like go tell that to coal miners, go tell that to asbestos workers, go tell that right. to literally Anyone who benefits from any type of workplace protection. I mean, if you really want to take a left approach to the pandemic, then nightclubs and restaurants are also workplaces and therefore not exactly. really spaces of consent fucking either. And the the home yeah, dinner party, as long as exactly. it's something where you're cooking for the people who are coming to your home and those people are not like in a cab, right? Like that's also not necessarily a space for consent. Like we live in capitalism. Consent is like really conditional exactly and due to the and due to the nature of this epidemiologically there is there's a sort of like cascading effect right mm -hmm. so my roommate for instance works at a coffee shop they they have to keep working at this coffee shop jobs are not easy to come by they do not have a college education it would be a perfectly good job to have in other circumstances but Customers come in unmasked, their coworkers come in unmasked. And even though they wear an N95, you can only ask it to do so much. That much exposure over time has led to 
multiple times them getting infected. And then that completely changes our household dynamic. All of a sudden, I have to change my behavior as well to avoid getting infected and they lose a bunch of money. Everything gets harder. You know, like they were about to take their cat to the vet the last time they got infected and they had to put that off. Like it, it has all these downstream effects and considering that like leftism is sort of supposed to be the side of collectivity and of like recognizing that we are all connected and that we all affect each other. Um, it's weird that we're short-sighted in this one instance where it's like, well, even if I decided that it was okay for me to come, you know, get infected, like, yeah, none of the other people, like you said, none of the other people that I interact with even know that, like, they don't even have the opportunity to know all of the interactions that I've had or all the places that I've been or the things that I've decided to do sort of on their behalf. Mm -hmm. So like you have this downstream effect, like three or four people down the line, that that the person sort of making this decision about like, well, I accept the risk. Well, the people three or four <laughs> links down the chain have no possible way of of doing that. For someone who's like still not convinced, like if you could just sort of talk to the platonic ideal blank slate, COVID denialist leftist, who's like Listen, it's not that I don't care about disabled people. It's not that I don't care about workers. You know, it's just that, like, this is over. It already happened. There's nothing else we can do. There's no more we can do. There's no power that we have in this relationship because COVID is, like, too big for us. <laughs> well, in my head, I'm saying, okay, Doomer. Like, I don't fuck know. You. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would say that that is exactly the message that power is communicating to us. And that is the message that is given to us on so many issues aside from COVID that we, that we work against. There's so many things that are said to be inevitable or said to be like, well, whether you agree or not, it's here to stay. I, you know, I saw somebody saying that about like, you know, chat GPT the other day. Whether you like it or not, it's here to say. So let's just figure out how to use it best. And like that is the language of inevitability. Why are we even fighting then? Like at that stage, why are we engaging in activism at all? I mean, we might as well just sit back and and do our little jobs and watch TV. But the 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 truth is, when we do that, the world around us keeps getting worse. It just keeps getting worse. We we try like I I mean, I spent my early twenties as a complete hedonist, like basically <laughs> nihilist, you know, I, I, and I did care about people. Um, but I was more interested in having fun and doing cool shit. And like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that was, that was fun and cool. But as I was doing that, the world kept getting worse and eventually it will reach you like mm -hmm. in one way or another, it will reach you. And like, a line that's been going through my head lately is it's easy to be easygoing when the going's easy. And I don't know. I, I think there's like, there's often this attitude or maybe not even attitude so much as like human psychological tendency that like, I, I am the sort of like, I am the protagonist of my story. And like, I see these things happening to other people and I do care. I don't like when bad things are happening to other people, but, that won't happen to me because that's not the story that I'm in. And 
but my my point is like nothing is inevitable and, and that's the whole reason that we are trying to take on the behemoth of <laughs> american empire in the first place which would absolutely claim its own inevitability and invincibility and infiniteness um you know it's it's like almost cheesy to quote the ursula Le Guin line that like capitalism no i'm gonna misquote it now but like capitalism seems inevitable uh so too did the divine right of kings um these things can change and we have a responsibility to do what we can to change them with what we have available where we are um so i think sure we can point to like the Biden administration is ultimately responsible for this. Uh, the CDC is ultimately responsible for this. We could point out even individual actors in that, but they're not going to just, they're not going to do this on their own and they're not going to respond to us like tweeting at them either. Um, and the only way that we can even form a, a sort of collective resistance is to start where we're at. So every chain of transmission that is broken is valuable like every person that doesn't get sick, that doesn't lose that week of work or doesn't become disabled or die from the minorest of inconveniences to the greatest of losses. Every single one of those things is valuable. One of the people um, I, I've I've before I got like super sick, I did a lot of like climate stuff, both climate activism and also trying to do like permaculture type stuff. And like one of my greatest mentors in that area would say stuff like every beetle saved is valuable. Like if you create a small haven for wildlife in your own backyard, that has value. Even if that in itself is not enough to like topple the whole problem, topple the whole regime, because you're, you're creating these like little islands of safety. And the more of those islands of safety there are, like the more that they interconnect and form a web of resilience. Um, and so like, I kind of see that as our project right now is like, we have to kind of build that from the bottom up and that starts with making our own movements in, in whatever, whatever topic that we're working on, it starts there. So like in that sort of sense, what are some things that give you hope What some of the things that give me hope are like thinking back to the stories you would tell us about chestnuts <laughs> and what I learned about the world around me from you and, just from our conversations that we had about how wonderful it was to share space with each other, you know, what are some of the things that like keep you going, even in those moments where you get disconnected? Yeah, that's, um, that's a harder one to answer with a really good quippy, like, <laughs> but really like, I don't know what gives, I think what gives me hope is, is each other really like in so many ways, the world has gotten objectively worse. And we are going hard on a very bad trajectory. But at the same time, we are watching consciousness change. We very much are. I mean, I've I've come a long fucking way for one thing. But even like even the awareness about some of these things around in like normie culture or whatever, like my mom takes it for granted that like the police reports after a fucking, you know, police shooting are probably bullshit mm. we still have like so far to go in terms of creating like an overwhelming groundswell but we're up against the fucking behemoth that is spending 
all of its fucking money to try to change these perceptions and we're still making an impact. The fact that on any like mainstream news article, you will see the comments on Twitter absolutely full of people challenging those narratives. I think there is a lot of hope to be found in that. And in whatever little pockets of growth we can make, the sort of like seeing the people that are hit the hardest, like find each other, have conversations around their sort of co-experience and and trying to like build something out of that, I think is largely where the hope comes from. I mean, there's only one place to to find it and giving up now doesn't seem like an option. Yeah. Just to sort of start us on the record, do you mind doing uh, like my name is, my pronouns mm-hmm. are, and I'm an organizer with Build Back. Yeah. yeah, my name is Raya Small. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm an organizer at Senior and Disability Action in San Francisco. Now, do you mind talking briefly about sort of what kind of organizing you do, what kind of issues you organize around, maybe campaigns you've worked on in the past year, just to give a kind of general context for the work that you're doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm a full-time organizer at Senior and Disability Action, which is a fairly small community organization made up um, with a membership model. Our members are mostly seniors or people of all ages with disabilities. Uh, Some are allies who care about the issues. And we work on a pretty wide range of issues, mostly related to housing, healthcare, transit, and sometimes other stuff as it comes up. Um, Yeah, I guess in the past, I've worked on some of our organizing around mental health. Particularly, we were fighting a conservatorship expansion Mm -hmm. in California that you might know about. It was piloted in three cities. San Francisco was one of them. And yeah, unfortunately, we lost that fight, but we did organize like a huge coalition against it. And um, yeah, very strong public opposition to it. But it went through anyway. It was good work. It's a, it's, yeah. a, it's hard work, though, especially in California, which is so favorable towards conservatorship in general. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess my first question is, you know, you've been involved also, as we were talking about before the interview, um, over email in a campaign to push back against the rolling back of mask mandates, specifically in Oakland. Um, in terms of also sort of taking on, on top of the organizing agenda that y'all were working with before the pandemic, obviously you've also taken on issues that are relative to the community that you're already organizing in that have to do with the pandemic as well. And this is something that's pretty common is I've mostly been speaking to organizers who were doing work that's not pandemic specific, but that Mm -hmm. must consider the pandemic in some way or is having to grapple with issues raised by the pandemic or the abandonment as a result of the response. Um, So do you mind talking, you know, a little bit about 
For example, how the campaign that, that you've been working on since, uh, I think you said spring of 22, mm-hmm. sort of what that process was like and has been like of doing that organizing work and you know how that's gone and maybe any issues or conflicts that you've run into, whether it's internally um, with the community or, you know, just logistically even. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess we, we started um, organizing to bring back mask mandates. Yeah. I guess it was probably in March of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And here, you know, it's something that's like really different state by state, as you know, like in California, we mostly had an indoor mask mandate until February of last year. Like there were a couple months that it was lifted, but then it came back. Um, so it really felt like a pretty stark change to me personally. It did like to be like, oh, suddenly when I go to the grocery store, there's people not wearing masks. Whereas before it was pretty like close to 100 percent. Yeah, um, it was jarring. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, you know, kind of a big shift. And then also the transit stuff that happened. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, with the federal TSA mandate being repealed. And then like, what does that mean for our local transit? So yeah, we mostly, our first kind of big push was to get our local, biggest local public transit agency, BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit, to bring back the mask requirement. And that was successful, which was really exciting. We did kind of a lot of lobbying with BART board members and calling into the public meetings and meeting with some of them privately. And um, yeah, there was really a lot of support to continue requiring masks on BART, mostly because you know, it had been in place since the beginning of the pandemic and it had not, you know, it hadn't created any problems. Everyone was used to wearing a mask on transit and it was, you know, making it safer. And yeah, it wasn't like (laughs) it didn't, no one had, I I didn't have the feeling that there were people who were just like waiting for this to be taken away. (laughs) You know, it was like, yeah. Um, So there was a lot of like community support for continuing masking on BART and a lot of, you know, people who are like, oh yeah, I have like a baby. I don't want you know, like my baby can't wear a mask. I don't want to feel like it's not safe on BART or, you know, like people Mm -hmm. who are, you know, high risk for various reasons, people who had young kids, essential workers, just so many people supported bringing back the mask requirement. So that was, it was great. They brought it back for three months. And then kind of what was stated was that they were like, oh, in this time, you know, we'll work with the public health departments and stuff to, you know, (laughs) set a, set a new guideline. And then, of course, the public health departments were completely unreceptive and didn't do anything. And then we pushed again at the end of the three months and got another three month extension. And then after that, we we tried again. And that time it it did not pass, Um, which, yeah, was really disappointing and just kind of shows how much ideological shift happened in that six months. Um, Mm -hmm. The same people who at first were like, oh, this Trump judge struck this down. Like, we don't want to follow that we're the Bay Area. We want, you know, like we want to follow the science, et cetera. Like just six months later, we're like, oh, it's not our job to enforce public health policies. Like we're a transit (laughs) agency. We can't be in charge of this. Yeah. And then also a lot of kind of misinformation about the mask requirement leading to conflict and violence against workers, BART workers, which we did like a public records request and found all the incidents that were cited and most of them were not incidents of, of anyone getting hurt. It was just like someone was being belligerent or not wearing a mask and was asked to wear one. So there was a lot of kind of lack of clarity about what was actually happening there. That's really interesting because I think that's one of the 
That's one of the arguments you you hear often is either, oh, well, you know, because the, the, the larger mask mandate isn't in place, this puts workers in a vulnerable situation, and so we need the mask mandate. But then often, in the same breath, people will make the argument of exactly the opposite of, oh, well, the mask mandate puts workers in this position where they're forced to have these engagements. And, you know, it's frustrating because I think well, that frame might sound right at face, right? The the fact and the the facts of COVID and the way that it spreads through the air kind of actually changes the calculus a little bit because we, you know, whether a worker is going to interact with someone or not, they're still going to be exposed to that person's virus if there's, mm-hmm. you know, no mask mandate and all the other virus that might be in the air, right? And yeah. uh, and I, I think that's that's also really interesting what you were saying about also how the community perception really shifted and shifted following the tone of how some of the larger sort of federal, national and international discourse was happening, regardless of the identity of Oakland, of Northern California, of San Francisco as being a kind of progressive, liberal, you know, committed to things like disability rights. This is the birthplace of the disability rights movement in the United States, really, you know, and to think of like, oh, well, you could see over the course of a year, the shift of people conceptualizing vulnerable people as being on the same standing, on the same page as them, of being in the same boat to seeing vulnerable people as others over the Mm -hmm. course of the year sort of play out like that and how much more difficult that actually made the organizing that you were doing <laughs> for the community of vulnerable people, right? And so it shows, I think, as a really good example also of, you know, why we kind of can't just take one strategy here because nothing is ever happening in a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. Like we we have to be always considering the context of the organizing that we're doing and sort of what political pressures we're working under. And it seems like a theme that I've been seeing is that, it's gotten harder, more demoralizing, and more difficult to win the kinds of demands that folks are making, in particular over the last 12 months. Is that something mm-hmm. that you feel like has really been noticeable for you as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, part of it. I think it's definitely like sort of the ideological trickle down from the top, <laughs> you know? Um, the only true trickle down, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is really unfortunate. Like. Yeah, normalization of death <laughs> does trickle down, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think also, yeah, people just getting used to to being in public indoor spaces where wearing a mask is a choice and a lot of people aren't. I think at first that felt very shocking and it felt like, no, this is a collective thing. This is a policy level decision. And then, yeah, now it's become just very normal for it to be like, oh yeah, it's up to individual choice and like who are we to tell people that they have to wear a mask like a lot of that has unfortunately filtered down and also um you know more and more people feeling like they're not vulnerable to covid even though we all are which i know you know you guys have talked about a lot on death panels just like the way all of this stuff is written like oh well if you're high risk it's written as if that's applying to like a tiny margin of the population when actually it's like most of the U.S. population. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, there's this sort of um, rhetorical use of high risk or vulnerable, which is used to make people believe it doesn't apply to them kind of no matter what. So, yeah, I think that has made it harder. I think just in general, I think our 
you know, elected officials have really taken a turn on COVID over the last year from it being kind of a liberal versus conservative issue. And, you know, with mostly everyone here who's in office as a Democrat, up until last summer, it felt like there was pretty widespread support for continuing precautions. And that has really changed over the last year to now, you know, the mainstream Democratic line is very much, oh, either COVID is over or it's not over, but it's not a crisis anymore. And we don't need to use the same tools. And, you know, it can be managed, you know, with Paxlovid and it can be managed all these ways. So that has been a big shift and has made it really a lot more difficult. Um, And also just, you know, as we said, kind of from the beginning, like, the more you get rid of mask requirements and then try to bring them back, like the more back and forth there is, like the the harder it is to get protections brought back. And I know that was definitely part of a deliberate strategy from the health department to not be consistent about it. But of course they didn't say that. They said like, Oh, we're getting rid of mask requirements now. So we could bring them back when, when it's really scary. Exactly. (laughs) Or when there's a new variant or when there's cases are higher and it's like, there's been, more new variants than we can count, but they haven't brought them back the whole time. Yeah. I mean, we're barely into February and we almost have 20,000 deaths in Mm -hmm. the the new year. And also we know that reporting is happening like at a fraction of the speed as it used to, and that there are so many delays up to six weeks in death certificates. It's very worrying, Um, which is partially why I really am excited to have these conversations right now, because I feel like as hard as 2022 has been, 2023 is already looking a little harder and it's going Mm -hmm. to be, I think, one of the harder years that we've experienced actually so far in COVID, which is saying a lot because getting harder than 2020 is impressive Um, and getting harder than last year is impressive as well. I mean, the, the Omicron wave in the United States really was a shift in terms of what we were willing to accept uh, in terms of density of sickness at one time. And that has completely shifted labor conditions for folks across the board. My my question that I was going to ask next, you kind of already answered, but I guess just I'll ask it again in case you have more to say, which is that, you know, what do you think contributed to some of the successes you had in those first two pushbacks that mm. were not there in that third instance? You know, mm-hmm. Are there any lessons that you kind of pull from comparing and contrasting? Like, obviously, the first time there was a kind of novelty to the removal of the mask mandate, and that that seems to have been a clear advantage. But Mm -hmm. by the time you were pushing back on the second mask mandate removal and you got that three-month extension, I feel like that was a peak period of, of normalization in the U.S., and we were really seeing heavy, heavy resistance to the idea of 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 people who are not high risk masking at all. You know, one way masking works was like the thing to say at that moment. And mandates were attempted in a couple places like Philadelphia, in effect for maybe three days, pulled back mm-hmm. like a huge media thing. You know, we've seen we've seen a couple instances where this has been successful, but the case that you know you've had actually of like pushing back twice successfully is relatively unheard of actually, in the United States. And so really specifically, you know, if there are any lessons that you feel like came from that that might be helpful to other organizers, I'd be really curious to hear about that. Mm, Yeah, that's a really good question. And I appreciate that framing of it. I think some of it was 
Yeah, definitely the first pushback against the BART mandate lifting. There was a lot of, yeah, the novelty. It was very newsworthy. A lot of people were, you know, just like kind of shocked or upset by it. There was just very widespread, you know, public support for continuing to require masks. And I think, I think ultimately kind of what, I don't know. I think we had some luck, honestly, the first couple of times <laughs> with the people on the board, like even though it was the same people, mm-hmm. I think that they were just like more willing to kind of go against the grain before there had been such deep normalization and so much kind of political push to think of COVID protections as like a toxic issue or as something you don't want to be involved in. And I think mm. for people working in government, that that did change over the summer from it being something that was a little more acceptable to it feeling like it was going to harm their career more. Um, and mm. I also think, you know, we were working with, yeah, the BART board, which is an elected board. And I think that's part of why we had a, a bit more success there than with some of the appointed boards, like with the SFMTA, which runs the public transit system within San Francisco. We also tried the same strategies and, you know, we even had like a protest outside of their office and we did not have any success with them. And I think a lot of it was because they are all appointed and working at the mayor's permission. And, mm. you know, the mayor mayors are very much anti-mask requirements and like back to back to work, back to business. Let's fill our downtowns again. <laughs> so I think that, <laughs> yeah, I think working with an elected board gave us a little more leeway, mm. especially when they could see that, oh, this is what like 90, 95% of our constituents calling in are asking for. Um, so yeah. And, and I think the reason why we didn't win the last time is really just because we kind of had the same size group and applied the same amount of pressure and just conditions had changed. Bar was higher. It was. And like it, you know, at this point, it takes a lot more um, Mm -hmm. to get the same, the same things we had before or the same things, you know, like the protections we had in 2020 and 21, or the ones that we fought to bring back last year. I think it's just going to take a lot more disruptive organizing and a lot more people to get that brought back. And that's just kind of an assessment of what needs to happen in order to to bring back some of these protections. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's frustrating, actually, how there's such a consistent pattern across all of the interviews that I've done so far, where regardless of whether folks have had success, they've had less success as they've had to either ask for more or ask for the same things longer mm-hmm. and with the same size group. That's been... yeah you know, really consistent as the bar got higher and higher, what organizations were sort of being asked to do in terms of what gaps, you Mm -hmm. know, folks are covering or expected to cover in order to make things safe got bigger and bigger. And so it's almost been an effective way of also, I think, almost like starving uh, out some of the energy that's also Mm -hmm. within some of these organizational formations where you have folks... um, burning out as a result of also these higher bars and the fact that sort of as more things have progressed, it's almost like layering more on people's plates. And it's not Mm -hmm. like anyone had like a light organizing agenda pre-COVID. And some people, you know, were not organizing before COVID Mm -hmm. and have only started. And and even so, as the last year, year and a half has progressed, their COVID organizing load has gotten bigger and bigger Mm -hmm. and bigger. And the constituencies that are sort of seeking their help or support have gotten more numerous and Mm -hmm. more people are looking to connect, but also more people are engaged in 
similar fights with similar loads. And it's almost as if sometimes some of the the some of what's on the docket almost seems to be not only demobilizing and discouraging, but also preventing us from having any spare time to share with each other. You're the only person mm-hmm. that I've spoken to who does this full time. Mm-hmm. Everyone that I've spoken to so far is also doing this around their job, around their job in school. And so when we start thinking about temporal resources in terms of organizers' time and their mental energy, you know, as as pandemic uh, workplace protections have shifted, as they've had to maybe advocate you know, in multiple arenas as a result of these things shifting, it's really clearly sucking um, some momentum out of some of the stuff that folks were already working on. And it's not that they're like less committed to it. It's just mm-hmm. that everything has gotten more labor intensive, more difficult. The bar is higher um, and it's harder to get people in the same space. So it feels like there's a lot that we're kind of up against right now. Um but even so, I know you and I are in agreement on this. Um, <laughs> but would you talk about why you personally feel that despite taking on and considering COVID, adding so much more to our plates in terms of how we're thinking through political organizing, thinking through things like mutual aid, thinking through just the basic minimum of stuff that used to kind of be a given before, you know, getting people in a room um, why do you feel that COVID is still a really important issue that we need to be adapting our organizing norms to and adapting our demands to as well? Mm. I think just like very basically, it's having such a huge, you know, and catastrophic effect on our lives. Like those of us who are living through this time, it just feels like to not respond to it feels, um, it feels both like psychologically and politically just not right. Kind of like, I don't know. Like, I feel like personally, I feel like I can't really trust an organization that's not taking on such a huge issue that is affecting everyone, but particularly poor people, working class people, people of color, people with disabilities, elders, like people who are already oppressed in so many ways and were before 2020 and now, you know, are facing much lower life expectancy and harder lives while we are alive. It just feels like to not respond to that feels, yeah, it just feels really out of touch. And I think Mm -hmm. that even organizations that are not really, that are like, oh, we don't have time to deal with COVID or they don't see it as a political issue, which I find really frustrating. Like it's seen as sort of a, you know, an unfortunate kind of like side tragedy, sort of like, (laughs) it's like, oh, yeah, that makes our work a little harder. But I think it is harming them as well to not respond, because it's like, um, I don't know, I've heard from friends who are involved in other types of organizing and in unions and stuff, they're just like, oh, we can't get people to our meetings, we can't, you know, like stuff isn't going so well. And it's, I think, like, when you don't take into account the actual, like, material reality that people are working through it it just you know the organizations fall apart i mean one of the reasons i was really interested in speaking to you is because you're also organizing primarily non-working people which is rare a lot of organizing comes from the model of building solidarity through economic justice through Mm -hmm. employee 
employment relations and understanding, you know, the ways that laws, policies, and norms affect your material survival. And I, I've heard a lot of folks say we've had so much success talking about COVID as an economic justice issue, talking about mm-hmm. COVID as an issue of, well, you can't afford to miss work. You can't afford to be sick. Mm-hmm. You can't afford to actually um, take the time off you need or, you know, deal with these things. So like the kind of Cost-benefit analysis is that uh, masks work out to be cheaper. Hybrid meetings work out to be cheaper in the long run, and that that's been a huge salient conversation that people have had with, with in their own organizing. And obviously, that economic justice angle does apply specifically to non-working populations. But the kind of built-in employee-employer analysis is missing from mm-hmm. that. And you you. Uh, like myself or someone who was thinking about disability and working on, you know, things like social citizenship and access to public space before the pandemic. I know a lot of folks who became aware of sort of disability justice recently have been really dismayed to find that this is not broadly uh, left issue. Mm-hmm. Personally, as someone who was working on it before, not happy where we're at now, but uh, I've been working on this specifically trying to talk the left into paying attention to these issues mm-hmm. <laughs> and recognizing them as, you know, part of our left constituency, not just in the United States, but as a kind of a lens for also looking not just at including more people, but how do we understand our own relationship to work by <laughs> thinking of those who are either kept out of work or who do not work. Um, I feel like we have seen some tremendous shifts in terms of awareness that this is even a thing in mm-hmm. the last five years, even, that these issues exist, I think, in a way that didn't exist a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling, you know, three years into the pandemic, doing the work that you've been doing, what are the things that we need to be trying to emphasize in terms of like expanding the left understanding of disability in our kind of immediate near future? Yeah. Wow. That's such a, such a big question. Um, <laughs> it's okay yeah. if you don't have an answer too. Uh, um, I guess I think something that like I've been thinking about a lot, you know, during COVID and that I feel like, you know, death panel has, done a tremendous job of like getting out there is just, you know, the idea that disability and like debilitation and capitalism are all intertwined. And, you know, none of us like gets out alive, basically. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And I think when people kind of see that in their own lives or their own families or, you know, friends, comrades, like, it feels a lot more real just, um, you know, and also just like, you know, the older you get, like, I mean, I'm in my mid thirties now, but like a lot of people have now had an experience of like, oh, I wasn't able to work for a few years or a year, or, you know, I take care of my mom or, you know, like I've, you know, had a mental health condition that kept me from my previous life in some ways or realizing that it's not, it's not like this, you know, like neatly delineated fringe group Mm -hmm. of like disabled people who are all you know, come into the world with their disability and with identity as a disabled person. And like, yeah, I think membership also, card stamped. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, it's like this small kind of side group, like just the idea that 
you know, like we all kind of, I mean, some people are disabled their whole lives and then some people are disabled for part of their lives. And like that is happening in, in tandem with racial capitalism and how that is, mm-hmm. you know, making our whole, you know, especially with climate change and stuff, just to make making our whole environment unlivable for our species and like how that, how that affects us all. It just feels like really seeing it as, you know, a core issue and not a fringe issue. I feel like that's really important. My last question is we often face these moments, right, where we're going to have setbacks, we're going to have hard years, we're going to have moments where we are facing insurmountable odds to get the demands that we want. But as you know, that can never be a reason to not move forward with the work. Um, When you're sort of dealing with those moments, or maybe not even when you're dealing with those moments, just sort of in general, what are the things that give you hope? What are the things that kind of keep you going? What do you use to sort of center and ground yourself to remind yourself sort of why you're doing what you're doing to keep moving when we hit these points, like particularly the last year where things get hard and dark And the kind of solidarity that we thought we were building towards might seem a little more tenuous than it did the year before or months before. I, you know, I draw a lot of hope and just knowledge from history. And I don't know, I was recently reading this book called We Want Everything by Nanny Balestrini. Have you heard of it? I have, Um, but I haven't read it yet, to be honest. Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. It was really great. Um, Yeah. And so it's about um, Italian workers and auto factories in the seventies and the North of Italy and how they just kind of like went on like waves of wildcat strikes. And we're just like, this is bullshit. But just, you know, reading something like that and just seeing how under certain conditions, sometimes there's just like the right moment for a big explosion of, of activity. And, you know, a lot can be won very quickly. And then other times it's kind of like slow plotting and feeling like nothing's being won for, you know, months or years. My name is Kelly Hayes. My pronouns are she, they. I am an organizer with the Lifted Voices Collective and the host of Truthout's Movement Memos podcast. I'm also the co-author of the forthcoming book, Let This Radicalize You with Miriam Kappa. First of all, the book is fantastic. (laughs) I've really enjoyed reading it. It made me really want to talk to you or Miriam specifically um, because of what this book is supposed to be as a tool. So just to sort of set up, do you mind briefly sort of talking about just what kind of organizing you do, like how long you've been doing it, what issues you organize around, et cetera, where you locate your your political home and work? I am a prison and police abolitionist, so I have done a lot of organizing around issues related to state violence. After engaging in various forms of activism throughout my life, I met Miriam Kappa a little over a decade ago. And that relationship really shaped my path in terms of honing in on police and prisons and having a real liberatory vision for the first time, as opposed to just being in attack mode because I was angry about injustice. 
Miriam taught me the importance of building relationships and also the importance of learning together. Uh, my collective has a strong focus on political education, which I really credit to my time with We Charge Genocide, where political education was at the center of my work. Prior to the pandemic, my collective was doing a lot of direct action trainings that there was a surge in interest in that kind of political education after Trump was elected. And we trained people relentlessly and we coordinated a lot of protests over the years. But after the pandemic began, we shifted our focus to mutual aid. And that's where the focus has largely remained during this time. Mm -hmm. um, in the last year, we have done a lot of work to connect grassroots organizers and our networks with survival stipends and other resources because people are really struggling. Um, last summer, we heard that a lot of our comrades, particularly our formerly incarcerated comrades, were struggling to survive inflation. So we did a round of survival stipends for activists who are criminalized survivors. Since then, we have helped some young Black and Native activists stay in college who couldn't pay their tuition, help people cover their rent, medication costs, assistive devices, paid for abortions, covered costs so people could continue unpaid work helping unhoused people and folks who use substances in their communities, and covered therapy for some folks who were getting out of abusive situations and allowed a Native birth worker to continue to continue to pay her bills and take on more unpaid work. And I'm taking the time to enumerate all of those things because while they are not macro-level organizing wins, which we, of course, need in a big way, they are all little victories that are going to make larger wins possible. And I've been hearing from a lot of people in recent months that they feel stuck or that everything feels stuck and that they don't know what to do. And I sympathize with those feelings a lot. Um, I'm also a big believer in seasonality. And I think we have to take care of our people in winter in both the literal and metaphorical mm. sense. So that's where a lot of my energy has gone these days. What advice you know, what would be your advice for people grappling with getting the people that they organize with to take COVID seriously? So the lack of consensus around COVID safety and the lack of regard for the well-being of disabled people, as well as the worrisome impacts of continuous COVID infection, has been extremely harmful to our movements. And I think a lot of the problems we are seeing mirror what's happening in the rest of society. You have people who are determined to act like everything's normal when it's not, and people who are asking for some safety measures. And often those people are treated like they're asking for a return to lockdowns and saying no one can gather. We have people saying that it's alienating to require masks and that it's depressing to focus on COVID and that it's hard enough to get people invested in social justice and that you just have to meet them where they're at and where people are is unmasked. And, you know, look, I'm a realist. I do not expect universal masking from all people in all public situations, everywhere at all times. But in our workspaces, in the community we build together, and in the culture of protest, we cannot say it's just too alienating, hard or depressing to avoid killing people or causing each other serious harm. The world has changed. And that's a very hard, that's very hard for people to, to accept. As a reflex, most people will justify the systems they depend on, justify the status quo, and attempt to replicate the social relations they are familiar with, even if those things are unjust, rotten, or deteriorating. 
um, as activists and organizers, we are supposed to have the capacity to recognize change and the need for change. Part of our work is helping other people understand those changes or the need for those changes. It's not our job to make people feel comfortable partaking in normalcy. That's never been an activist's or an organizer's job. COVID normalcy is the blueprint for obliterating whatever regard we have left for other people in this individualist, death-making society. The lives most of us live always came at someone else's expense, and we know that about capitalism, but everything is getting a lot starker. Um, in terms of you know, what to do about it, I think we have to recognize that we are in a moment when reciprocal care and giving a fuck about what happens to disabled people, <laughs> to marginalized people, to migrants and prison people and others is becoming increasingly countercultural. So for one thing, I think we need to focus on building that counterculture. What does it look like? I think we need to look at how we can make gatherings safer and what practices we can build out amongst those of us who are looking to engage in a good way. And that means thinking about ventilation, thinking about masking, thinking about how to make outdoor gatherings feasible in less ideal weather. It means everything but giving up and going into isolation or giving up and adopting the new normal because the process of accepting that this group is now expendable or that group is now expendable is how they will destroy us all if we allow it. And I think a lot of people who know enough to realize that simply aren't letting themselves understand it because it's hard. The world has changed and it's going to keep changing. Building a counterculture of people who are not in denial about that who are adaptive and responsive and determined to keep each other alive, that's what building any viable resistance movement in these times is going to look like. I would also encourage people to look to disabled organizers who are sharing resources about how we can get through this stage of things. I know uh, Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasena, uh, who will actually be a guest on Movement Memos in a couple of weeks, has a new resource coming out for disabled folks about gathering safely, including during colder months. When you face those moments where, you know, there's a lot of despair threatening to overwhelm and, and stifle hope, what keeps you going? What helps you push through? My relationships give me hope. Um, I am constantly heartened by my partner, by my friends, by the fact that some of us are alive and uncaged in a world that made that extremely unlikely. Mm. I always say on my show that our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember that the good we do matters. And I believe that with my whole heart. When I think about all the good my community has done from year to year as we struggle and care for people and care for each other, I know my purpose. And I find that if you can hang on to your sense of purpose amid the storm, take action and do some good, you can make your own hope. Not always, but often. I also think about something Dean Spade said on my show words that I actually keep framed beside my desk. He said, I don't know where this is going. None of us know where this is going. It's not looking good. But what do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? Being fully alive, being with other people, being in it together, taking risks, being really, really caring, and learning to love people, even if they annoy me. <laughs> learning deeper love. I love those words a lot and I hold on to them. And I think knowing that we have that capacity that Dean's talking about, mm -hmm. that's my light in the tunnel.
So that wraps our special two-part episode. Thank you to Alex, Raina, Becca, Rhea, and Kelly for lending their time and expertise. Really appreciated getting the chance to talk to everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this series. Patrons will catch you Monday in the bonus feed. For everyone else, we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism from your local bookstore or request it from your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week. What you're doing I won't know you Pretty soon Got to try To improve your brain To see it And your